everyone, welcome back to the Book and Life podcast. Today we're going to have a brand new book guest on. Whether they're an author, an editor, a producer, you'll never quite know, so you're in for one hell of a ride. But today I just have to uh, do the adverts and then I'll get us straight into that most important conversation. And as as we do every week, um, I'm going to read The Shadow which is part of the Time Guardian series, and this is book four from Marianne Curley. The battle is over, the war is won. The prophecy complete, but life can't just pick up where it left off for Ethan, struggling to cope with tragic loss. At odds with friends in the guard, he finds himself adrift, jumping in shadows and sensing someone who can't possibly be there. Blaming herself for the goddess Athena's death, Giselle swears revenge to fullify the immortal's plan for world domination, but Giselle hadn't planned on love, and that leaves her with an unbearable choice. Should she follow her heart, or the strings of a goddess short on praise but high on expectation, who continues to pull her from the grave? As the guard and the order battles through the past and into an impossible future, darkness looks round every corner. The fight for the world's survival rests with just one. Is it friend or foe who stands in the shadow? And just a reminder that The Price of Freedom by Rosemary Aiken, sorry, Rosemary Rowan, um, is being donated to the Ukraine refugee crisis. And here's the blurb for her book. It's uh, one of her... Roman British crime series, which was written under her maiden name. All editions can be found online where all books are sold, even her agents donating her commission. Sorry, I don't have the blurb for that, but uh, that's that's what she's doing. And now, without further ado, let's get you to the guests. Well, guys, I did promise you somebody amazing. And I am coming through. So after we've had the amazing, you know, experience of Catherine and Liz, we are now coming back to the UK. This wonderful history section with a man who's got such talent in his fingertips. I'm surprised Merlin hasn't kidnapped him and uh, taken him back in time to rewrite the world of time, you know, and the world of history. So... You are not going to believe the guest we've got on, and I am so honoured he's come on, and he's going to have some fun with us. Um, so let's be gentle with him, guys. So without further ado, please welcome Gareth Williams. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. I did kind of imagine a Merlin kidnapping you to write history for him. Well, I've got friends who write in that in that particular period, so uh, you know it'd be yeah. great to feature in one of their books. Yeah, I just I just had this like lovely kind of idea of you walking along the street one day and then going poof because <laughs> <laughs> Merlin stole you to rewrite history and sounds fun. <clears throat> yes, I could I could see something like that happening. Do you? So tell us about your latest book, Serving Chakra. S- Serving Chakra. Right? So Chakra was a Shaka. Zulu uh, warrior 
who had a very difficult childhood, uh, living in a very small clan, his mother was disowned by um, his father, and so he lived on the very fringes of society, and despite that, had the ambition to uh, rise and come to dominate the whole uh, area in which, in which he lived, and he turned himself from this outcast into effectively what I guess we call an emperor, and he um, founded and developed uh, a very militaristic state, uh, which was the foundation of the Zulu people who continue to be such an influence in, in Southern Africa today. So he's the, one of the key characters, that's where the title comes from, but that's not the only thing the book's about. So. Uh, Serving Shark is a sequel to a book I wrote uh, last year called Needing Napoleon and it features a history teacher, uh, I was a history teacher before I retired, um, uh, write about what you know they say. And, yep. Um, yep. But I'm also writing about time travel which I don't know about personally but I've done, you know, I've, I've watched the movies, I've read the books. Um, and Richard Davy, the, the history teacher, has always, he's an expert in kind of French Napoleonic history and he's always wondered why Napoleon managed to lose the Battle of Waterloo when he clearly should have been able to win it with the resources he had with the expertise with his track record anyway yeah. keep it short the first bit he travels back in time uh, I won't give away how or, or that happens and uh, tries to influence the outcome of the Battle of Waterloo uh, it doesn't quite pan out as uh, he hopes but anyway he finds himself in exile with Napoleon in the middle of the South Atlantic on the island of St. Helena, which, oh dear. Yeah, which used to be an East India Company base for trading around yep. the world. And when the British decided that they needed to stick Napoleon somewhere where he wasn't going to come back from, having tried it with Elba in the Mediterranean and back was too near and, you know, the 100-day comeback happened, they, they picked yeah. the, one of the most distant points on the on the atlas uh, that was under their control, moved the East India Company out and stuck Napoleon in there with a load of uh, soldiers guarding him and a Royal Navy squadron patrolling around the island and said, there you go, stay there, keep out of trouble. Anyway, in my second book, Serving Sarka, Richard Davy helped Napoleon escape the island of St. Helena and head for the nearest landfall. And if you get an atlas out or you Google it, you'll find that St. Helena is slightly closer to the African continent than it is to the South American continent, but it's a long way from anywhere. It's three and a half thousand yeah. miles from anywhere. Anyway, so in Serving Charter, they end up pretty much shipwrecked on the southern the coast of South Africa and get captured by uh, the local tribe and handed over to their overlord, who by this time is Shaka Zulu, who is beginning to build his empire. He's in the early stages yeah. of that. And suddenly you've got the former emperor, Napoleon Bonaparte, interacting with the wannabe emperor, Shaka Zulu, and that that brings in some interesting opportunities. The dates all work, by the way. Um, Shaka was developing his state whilst Napoleon was on St. Helena, so I haven't had to fake any of that. But what I have done is wondered what might happen if Sharka had access to the military mind of Napoleon and Napoleon's knowledge of artillery and yes. musketry rather than him being dependent upon stabbing spears and shields 
and weight of numbers uh, in, in military terms. So Serving Charter is really an exploration of how these two uh, very military figures interact and how to some extent yes. Richard Davy, the teacher, plays referee between them. <laughs> I love that. And you can almost sort of see them kind of making their way into either America or Africa and, and the sort of domination that comes from that. Um, because you know that the two aren't going to quit. Napoleon was known for never giving up. Um, and that's what made him such a force of nature. So I could see this going really well. I think, I think this is a great book. Thank you. I mean, I think you're right that Napoleon never gave up, except, of course, really in the end in St. Helena, he did give up in real life. Uh, because yes. he simply couldn't. Um, he wasn't well either. Um, no. It was his health it, that it, failed him, abso I think. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, so I also have um, a section of the, the book where um, he gets healed, essentially, by, um, a, you can't call them witch doctors in the modern world, but you know the equivalent of, of, yes. sort of a herbal... Um, Herbalist, yeah. Herbalist, yeah. Exactly. Um, which allows me to have his, his character live beyond his natural span as well, um, because I've, I've got, there's a third book now which is in production, and my wife who's also my editor, bless her is nagging me for a fourth book in the series because she just, she can't, she can't cope with where I've left the third one um, right. so she wants some resolution, and uh, and funny you should say America, because America does feature um, in, will feature in the fourth book and it's funny because, like, when you were saying, as soon as you said where it was, I was like, well, the biggest, most powerful area for them to go would be the States. You know, like, and especially at that time when it was such a an untouched, powerful resource as well. I, I, I mean, that's, that's true, but obviously the East Coast was developed. And in fact, many, yes. many of Napoleon's family after the defeat of War at Waterloo, went into exile in America. And one of, one of his yeah. direct descendants was the mayor of Baltimore. That does not surprise me. I, I, you've got to also think that part of his, his relatives and his family must have been in a situation where they were like, you know... They can't resist the, the the climb to power. The power being such a, a a draw to them, so I could see them being in positions of power. And you know, descendants of him, even today, I could see being in positions sure. of, of great power. You well, know, you're, and, you're quite right because um, it was only 1848 when the next member of a family became the most powerful person in France. Louis Napoleon, direct yep. relative, um, was elected president uh, and then declared himself emperor a few years later and, and ruled until 1870. When he went into retirement, the British allowed him to retire uh, to Chislehurst in, in yes. England, um, live the life of a country squire. And his son, the Prince Imperial, um, accompanied the British army uh, in their wars against the Zulus in the 1870s and was killed yeah. out there by the Zulus fighting effectively alongside the British, which is a lovely art. Yes. If only I could work out a way of doing it, could be a beautiful end to, to my, my, my book series one day. 
I think I think maybe it could be that lesson that he manages to be able to pass through time whether it's a secret document or a secret letter hidden in a quilt or, or hidden in a way that passes it through one generation to the next you know I think that would be an, an awesome way of doing that yeah 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 well it's I've, I've stopped myself thinking about that at the moment because it'll get in the way of my work in progress but things are happening you can always make book. notes on the yeah, side yeah, yeah, though I like know. you can have a pad of paper okay. and just and i probably will you're quite right yeah i mean i i find myself doing that and it's so annoying i know what you're saying about that because i was doing something completely unrelated i was i was doing this sort of uplifting um kind of story with horses and and, and disabled children and therapy and I had to stop so many times because I was getting ideas for, like, oh, I could do this, or for this thing, or, oh, I really should be doing that for next this story. And it was very annoying because I had to keep stopping yeah. and making these notes so that I wouldn't forget because they, they were important to what I needed to do. Um... So yes, I I have fully, fully understanding your your pain <laughs> on this one. <laughs> so your what about your upcoming one? Because it's rescuing Richard. Tell us a little bit about that. So rescuing Richard uh, is just a continuation, really. Um, and and you know if if I could get a publisher, who would just have published an enormous book. I'd have published all three as one great big book, really. Um, yeah. Because they yeah. are one great big book. Because like so many of us. You know, we had lockdown and we had to do something. And I had this story yep. that had been hanging around, and I thought I'd just sit down and write it. And I aimed to write just one ninety thousand word book. And effectively, between the two lockdowns and a bit of extra time, I wrote three times that much. Um, yeah. So rescuing Richard is is really, I suppose, it's without obviously doing it. It's slightly turning the lens on on the history teacher character rather than these big historical figures that he's interacting with, they're still around. But it's a little bit yeah. more about him trying to find his place. Um, you know, he got hurtled back 200 years into the past uh, on a kind of wish, if you like, and yeah. um, it's a one-way ticket. That's my... Uh, the way I've framed it. That there's no possible way he's ever coming back for the present. You know, he's got he's made right. his bed and he's got to lie in it, but you know, yeah. living in 1815 or 1820 or 1825, which is what he's found himself doing in these three books, it's not yes. like living in ni uh, 1920 or certainly 2020 or 2022. Yeah. So, he, um, he, he struggles with that quite a lot. But in the third book, he starts to make peace with what he's done, where he is, and, and he's been there long enough, obviously, that he's made... Uh, meaningful uh, connections with people and in fact he gets married in the third book um, not to get, oh, but wow. he gets married in the third book and um, yeah. that's and has a child and that, that's a big deal it, it un, unsurprisingly changes his perspective quite a lot um, yeah. but for all of that it's not a third book where he settles down and starts living and, you know oh it becomes a farm and it's all lovely and they have lambs and it's, super. it's not like that at all in fact he ends up as an ambassador for the Zulu nation uh, in London, 
represents them, wow. along with uh, with uh, one of the Zulu leaders, um, and gets embroiled in other stuff that references back to the, 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 certainly the first book. Um, I'm trying not to give too much away here. Um, things start to connect, but other threads also uh, are developed which need more need resolution, which is why one day there will be the fourth book. So, yes. the, 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 all I can say about the third book, which isn't out yet, is that when I sent it to my publisher, I got an email that said, you've sent me this very rare thing, an almost perfect book. A bit weepy and lost all perspective, as you can imagine, because we all love praise. And we sit yes. in our little rooms, tapping away and, you know, we all want yeah, that moment you know, of I've never been praise, very brave yeah. about sharing works in progress um, before. Yeah. So they are, they're kind of newborns when they go out there. And so when someone says you've got a cute baby, it's, uh, you know, it puts a smile yeah. on your face. But anyway, it turned out that that wasn't what he really meant at all. Um, <laughs> oh. Well, it sort of was and it wasn't. So what he, he wasn't saying, oh, you're the next Shakespeare. It's amazing. What he was saying was, you know, the, the, your spelling, punctuation, grammar is actually perfect, and you've done a proper editing job, and I haven't got anything to correct. Um, that's really, ah. that's really what you meant perfect in that sense, not the yeah. best book ever written. But anyway, I had that five minutes where I, I was under the illusion that my publisher had been so bowled over by my literary prowess, which was a was a nice five minutes. Anyway, pretty smart. It was, yeah, <laughs> and we all need those five minutes yeah. to at, be fair. But at least he says, you know, I know how to edit a book now, which probably after, you know doing three in a bit over a year I could do yeah anyway so yeah. no I I get that I, yeah. so, <laughs> I think I'd love to get that sort of um credits one of these days because yeah. <laughs> my dyslexia means I don't think I'll ever put out that perfect well it's down to my book, editor you know? you know who Helen my wife is my editor and, yeah. and she she's a linguist by by with, uh, yeah. university experience and so she's got a great eye for all, all those tiny little uh, subtleties that publishers and editors care about and to be honest yeah. we probably don't I could be offending yeah. a lot of people there sorry uh, you know um, but you know I like to get the story out there and I like it to be to flow well um, but, yeah. but whether that word should be hyphenated or not to be honest if it's obvious in context I don't care but others, yeah, others, others do but there we go Yep. Yep. No, I I get that though. Like, cause I've been there and I've kind of been like, oh, oh, I really should really think rethink this kind of idea, you know. Um. But it flows that it flows that well that I really don't want to. Yeah, that's the hard thing. So, when you, so I'm yeah. When I'm redrafting, so first draft, like exactly like you get it all out there, and then you're very, you know, but it takes. It, it's a hard process, and you're very attached to the words you've written because there's a lot of effort involved. So, you know, the, yes. I'm currently working on, you know, having to rearrange stuff quite fundamentally and decide that some bits probably have to go. And in, in the thing I'm working on at the moment, and that's that's really much much harder than saying it's fine. I like it because this last piece I'm working on, I have let go and I've let other people see it, many more people. Yeah. So I'm, I'm happy, there's no point doing that and they're not listening to what they say, so that, that's proving a bit of a challenge to get my head around um, yeah. you know, the, the, the fact that 
all those words that I laboured over for days and days. Somebody, uh, oh, famously, one of the readers, I, wa I wanted a young uh, female reader to work on, on doing at the moment. And she said, I don't care about anything in the first 10% of this book. That was a, but, she's, she's a close relative too, so she's entitled. She's, yeah. You know, she can say what she wants. And I asked her yeah. what she wants, but nobody else I gave it to felt the same way she did, but nobody else I gave it to was a 30 year old single woman, you know, professional, you know, seeing the world the way she does. So it was very interesting. I'd probably conclude that my book's not for 30 year old women, actually, is probably the reality. Um, yes. This one, but um, it, it did make me look at it again in a different way, which was useful. Yeah, and, and so sometimes I know it's it feels off. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, and it it does feel like you know someone's just kind of kicked you in the verb, you know, in your teeth. Um, yeah. But there's also kind of an upside to that because you can almost learn. Yeah, exactly. You can be like, oh, okay, so this isn't working for her or them, but. I could make this work for for other people that would want to read that, it. Like, that, it might not be for her class, right. but it's yeah, but it, it's for somebody yeah, else. Yeah, I think one of the traps that I think writers fall into, particularly if, like for me, it, it's not my sole uh, way of supporting myself. Um, yeah. So I guess it's a glorified hobby. I think there, there is a danger that you write just to please yourself. And... Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that, by the way. Uh, I take great pleasure in pleasing myself with what I write. Um, but if you want to put it out there in the world, then you do have to take some account of, of those wonderful people who might actually read it. And, and they are entitled to, to be considered in the process. And, and it's yeah. being reminded of that is sometimes very important because it's quite easy to, to lose sight of um, what other people like just because you're indulging yourself. Yeah. But then also we have to write what's true to us. And I mean, yeah, yeah. you know, Virginia will said it best, you know, we're responsible to use pen and paper to hold up the mirror to the world. Absolutely. But if the mirror that we hold up to the world only reflects us, it's not a mirror, right? So I guess that's yeah. what I'd say. I'm not trying to be clever about it. And also, I'm not Virginia Woolf. Um, uh, no, neither am um, I. But I do, I do keep it in my yeah, mind. No, it's a beautiful thing, I, I, completely. But, but I, I don't yeah. have um, unrealistic expectations of what my books are going to do for the world. Um, if yeah. they allow somebody to escape into another world for a while, and that is a positive experience for them for whatever reason, and maybe they they, they enjoy a few of the little facts that I've got in there because I do do a lot of research. They are historical fiction. Um, all, all the better but essentially if they've escaped into that adventurous other life for a while and that's been a good experience that's all I'm aiming for there's nothing more pretentious than that about it yeah no I get it I did sometimes good though to have somebody say well you know in in the love of what we do we always have to kind of remember that you know, our pens come with responsibility oh, yeah. too, you know, and I kind of like to remind people of that because they're like, oh, I never thought of that. Yeah. And I'm like, well, yeah. Yeah. you kind of need to think about Absolutely. it. Absolutely. It's kind of important, sure. you know, like, and, and people always kind of give me the evil eye on that yeah. one. And I'm like, well, well, I, th I think so that I know you may be about to ask me this, but the, my current work in progress, it, there's a lot to be said about that. Um, 
yeah. sense of responsibility in writing what I'm currently writing. It's quite different from my trilogy of adventurous, you know, time travel yarns where, you know, really um, there isn't a lot of introspection or a lot of thinking about what does this say about, you know, our modern relationship with the past. Whereas the book I'm currently writing, there's, there's definitely more of that. Well, that's good. So tell us about this uh, upcoming release that you're okay, so, really so, excited well, about. Okay, so it depends if anyone ever, I don't whether it'll get out into the world or not, it depends on, on the publishing world. Um, so of course. I've got a working title, which is uh, Captain Liar and the Forgotten Flag, The Life and Death of William Augustus Bold. That's kind of the title and, and, okay. and, and the kind of subtitle. So William Augustus Bold is a character who I'm effectively writing a fictionalised biography for. Um, right. And the only way to explain William is to say that he would offend a lot of people in the way he lived his life if he was alive right. today. Um, he upset quite a lot of people living his life the way he did when he when he lived it, which was from about 1763 to 1804, something like that. Um, yeah. So I'll tell you a little bit about William, and then and then you uh, you can make your own judgment, I guess, about why I chose to write a book about him. Um, but I should just say that the last academic biography written about him was written in the sixties, the nineteen sixties. Um, yeah. So, and and although there are a couple of books that are sort of based on him, um, there's very basically very little been written about him except in academic papers. Um, yeah. Um, and in academic papers, he's genuinely regarded as um, a, a bit of a liar, a bit of a self-publicist, uh, a bit of a chancer, yeah. and someone who claimed to have achieved much more than he really did. And I think all of those things are true. But anyway, William was born in Maryland when it was still a British colony, um, named right. after Queen Mary. And um, his parents were English. But he was born out there in, in a largely German-speaking town called Frederick. And right. um, the revolution happened, and his family, being loyalists, loyalists, either of those, both of those, um, were on the wrong side of that argument. And right. um, his father, having made quite a success of, of, of the, their emigration, him and his wife's emigration, and had risen to be a landowner and, and so on, Found, found life much less comfortable once the politics of, of where he lived ran counter to his own belief. And, and William was his Correct. father's son, and um, so he ran away from home at the age of 14 to join the British army to fight against the rebels, right. to defend the colonies against uh, the threat of uh, secession uh, from, from the empire. Yep. And um, so he goes to Philadelphia and he joins the army and he ends up as a very junior officer and uh, as we know we know what happens, you know, the, the rebels win. So he's in New York when when when, when uh, the British surrender uh, New York and he gets on one of the transports out of New York uh, and the one he gets on, he's very lucky actually, most of the people in his regiment got on a, a transport that was going up to the Bay of Fundy to they were going to right. live in Canada. Of okay. Um, and that ship sank, and most of the those on board drowned. Uh, yeah. He chose 
partly because he had some pals who were going to Jamaica instead right. with the army to go on that trip, uh, which didn't sink. So it would have been a really short, not very interesting story. But anyway, he ends up in Jamaica, and the British then uh, send uh, quite a lot of troops to Florida, which they still control, to defend Florida against threats from both the Americans as they as they head south and from the Spanish who still had a large yep. territorial possession based around New Orleans. Right. Uh, so he's there for a while, uh, and he really, really wants action. He saw no significant action in the American uh, Wars of Independence. Uh, he's done nothing in Jamaica except gamble and, you know, chase ladies, uh, to be honest. And now he's in Florida, and he wants some action. And his uh, regiment is decimated by disease. Um, they have yeah. a cholera outbreak, they have a smallpox outbreak, half of them die, he, he's fine, but he's bored, he's stuck in Pensacola with nothing to do, and one day he's on the beach and he sees a band of Creek Indians and he just deserts and disappears into the woods with the Indians. And oh. it's the start of a completely new life, he reinvents himself, and the short version of the story is, he reinvents himself, he gets himself elected as uh, a representative of, of, of the Lower Creek uh, peoples, and um, along with two or three Cherokees and two or three Creek uh, chiefs, although technically the Creeks don't really have chiefs, um, he, he leads a, an embassy to London to, to see the king, to ask for the king's yes. protection for an independent confederation of Indians in that part of North America that would be a loyal right. colony uh, for the British. And he meets Pitt, Greville, um, the Prince Regent, almost everybody, and he's due to appear at a royal levee to be received by King George III. And a, a day or two before he's due to be received by the King, uh, the Spanish and the British have been at loggerheads, and they were, it looked like they were going to go to war. And the British were very keen to have allies in that part of the world, which is why it's going to yes. be received by the king. And the Spanish and the British signed a document which made took kind of war off the table and sort of cancelled yeah. his invitation to see the king at the very last minute. But uh, anyway, he, go, yeah. he goes back um, and reports that he's been totally successful because this is the kind of liar that he is. And long story short, he starts agitating militarily against the Spanish outpost in the area. In the end, the Spanish yeah. capture him, and he's in Spanish captivity for seven years before he escapes by jumping out of a porthole of a ship, swimming across a bay in West, in West Africa, getting onto an American right. privateer that takes him in a roundabout route to London again, comes back to Florida, yeah. and this time declares war on Spain, establishes a privateer navy which seizes Spanish ships on behalf of the British. Not that they've asked him to do this, but he's doing it. So he's taken yep. his people, his adopted people, to war against Spain. Yes. He's seizing ships. He seizes the Spanish outpost um, and holds it for five weeks against the Spanish. Yep. But you know where this is going to end. It's never going to end well for him. And at the age of 40, he's recaptured and they imprisoned him yes. in Havana, in the big port on Havana Harbour with the morrow. And yep. rather than um, turn coat or agree that he'll stop his activities, uh, he starves himself to death at the age of 46. 
Yeah, so that is that's that is William Adolf's life. Pretty hardcore, so yeah. He's quite a character. And of right. course, the reason I say he's pertinent to the things you were talking about is how should we think about someone who, you know, adopts native dress, uh, co-opts their cause for his own? Um, does he pose as their leader? By all accounts, he's elected, but what lies has he told them in order to gain their favour? You know, how should we see this guy? And the academics of, of the last 30 years have taken the view that he was a troublemaker out for himself and was largely despicable, which is also, of course, what the Spanish thought because he was such a thorn in their side. Um, I've taken a slightly less critical view and I've tried to see him as a man. And I've tried to... I think he was just doing what he needed to do to survive. Just to survive. Yeah, but he, he yeah. felt... I've portrayed him as someone who feels he's got a sense of destiny and he has to realise that in some concrete form and that drives him and drives him. Uh, yeah, of course. I should also say, he marries into the Greek tribe, has children um, with his wife, who's called Mary, who is herself actually of mixed blood. Um, and there's a whole lot of issues around how you portray these things um, to a modern audience, right. you know, which will include William's descendants, but will also include many people who decry the way Europeans use their influence over the tribes for their own benefit. There's a lot in there that I've had to wrestle yes. with and I'm still wrestling with in the way I write it. And it sounds like you've you know, you've put in the effort, you've put in the time, you've put in the thought to this. Um, and it sounds like it should be a really good good hit for you, especially considering how everyone's turning to history at the moment in a way it's because history has happened and they know the outcome and it's I hate to say this but it's a safe outcome yeah compared to you know what our life at the moment's right. like where we don't know what's going to happen or when um, you know and that kind of constant I think worry that we all've got now um so I think it's it's wonderful to sort of have that kind of detail orientated story. I think I think you're right. I think you know as I was saying before, that that's a great gift that literature can give anybody is, is is that opportunity to stop worrying about their current existence and and, and maybe also yeah. recognise that some of the things that drive all of us have always driven people. You know, all time. Yeah. And at the end of the day. As, somewhere in the book I say or I have a character say you know after all he was just a man you know trying to live a life and you know exactly um, he was without a doubt a terrible terrible husband um, yeah without a doubt and, and probably an even worse father I don't know maybe he was a worse husband actually um, but in all those struggles you know we all see echoes of our lives other people's lives um, yeah. and I think that's the, the thing that, that, that academia always gets inevitably sort of ignored is, is the human uh, perspective sometimes. You know, if you're an academic historian writing about a, a particular event, then, you know, it's a little bit like describing the pieces on the chessboard rather than wondering what that guy on the yeah. horse feels like when that's happening. Uh, because, because emotion isn't part of the academic study. Emotion's not part of it. And, and, and But also, in a funny sort of way, although... Mo understanding motives and so on is it's almost motives 
judged objectively rather than well how does this guy actually feel and what made him the way he was you know why what, yeah. why for example did William always hate people who spoke German well it's because he grew up in a Ger largely German speaking town where they used to beat him up down the alley mostly um, for not yeah. being like them um, and that he carried that with him for a while until he let it go uh, and you know we all have those formative experiences um, and there we go um, I, I think you did an amazing job explaining that to, to people because there is that kind of element of humanism to it. And I think that is something we need to try and kind of keep a hold of. And I think we need, in it, I think it's great that we've got all this uh, way of looking at academia and everything else. But we also have to understand that. It's the psychology that we need to remember when it comes to history because it's the way that people were treated. It's the way that people felt that led to the things that happened. Uh, that's right. That's and right. we need to kind of keep that in mind when we're going and we're learning about all this because if we don't understand how a group of people felt, then how are we going to stop ourselves from making right. that same yeah, that's, mistake? Yeah, that's, that's very well said. Funnily enough, I was uh, I chair the local readers and writers group on, on the island um, because I didn't move fast enough um, at the meeting. I think is how I ended up with the job. Anyway, I was I, I yeah. picked up a, a writer who was giving us a talk uh, last week, and he's very well known locally. He's written some marvelous books, both about uh, things that happened in the local area and, and everywhere else. He's a lifetime journalist, and he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a sharp character. And I was telling him a little bit about bowls in the car, and I said kind of the sensitivity issue around it and how you're going to offend some people even for addressing the subject. And he said, yeah, yeah, but, you know, you have to wonder whether those Indians felt like they were being taken advantage of or whether they felt that they were gaining an advantage from associating themselves with, or if with they William. even were aware well, of it. Well, exactly, yeah. But but that but I just thought it's a fair comment, you know. It, it, is yeah. it entirely by accident that a lot of the chieftains of that region in that period were themselves of mixed blood? I mean, there was clearly a reason why it was seen as um, beneficial to have a leader who had a foot in both camps, and that makes sense logically, you know, when they're yes. dealing with living on a frontier that's that where there's friction. Uh, but they also people. understood they kind of had an understanding of inbreeding way before we did. What? That's right. And I think that was part of that issue sure. was that they were like, ah, okay, uh, we need to look at having people outside of our own tribes mix with us because we're, we're starting to see issues with the ones that, you know, they see the health issues and there's nothing they can do about that. But, There's nothing that they can do to make it better. I think that, so I think... Yeah, I, I mean, that, that I, may not have been the issue with this particular group at that time, but clearly with small with small population groups, that, that very much can be. But, but I think what, what, yeah. what this guy Roger Hutchinson was saying to me was, is it really William doing it to them, or actually is it just as much them choosing to do it? Do it to yeah, him, I thought yeah. that was quite right. There's, just, there's definitely two voices here to, to, be, to be heard. Um, I agree. I think I think he's right in a way, but I like to always play devil's advocate. Oh. 
you know, and I always like to say, well, but, you know, did they actually know? Or did they even care? Did they see this as a way just to protect their community at all costs? Well, the, the, you they're know? very interesting because status in, in Greek society passes matrilineal. So it's the women who give their offspring status, not the men. Uh, which is which is really interesting. So the reason yeah. why William's children went on to be influential in the tribe after his death is because their mother was the daughter of a king. Yeah. Um, and came from a high status group, if you like. Uh, it yeah. wasn't him, so he might have at the time, that, you know, that he was doing all of this, have been quite renowned or infamous in the region. But the reality is, it was his wife. Long suffering, or I don't know whether she really did put up with him or not. But anyway, the, the mother of his children, she's the reason that that, that that his children went on to have influential lives in their in their community. Which um, at least that part of the story um, plays pretty well in a in a, in a modern society. There's always this great saying of, you know, there's always these great women behind you know, these successful men. And I think particularly back in those days, that was definitely the case. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, uh, it was definitely but, but, true. But they're very silent in, in history. Yes. Uh, for obvious reasons. They had to it be. Was in, it's just the way it was bound to be. Uh, and, you know, it's great that many, you know, female writers of, of historical fiction are reclaiming uh, a lot of those stories. Um, and that's the great place, yeah. the great role in historical fiction can, can, can play, for sure. Um, the difference, of course, is that there are lots of landmarks that do exist about William's life. There are very yeah. few about his wife's life in comparison. Yeah. Um, but was that maybe by her own design? I don't, I don't know. I, 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 I suspect not. I suspect it's just the, the way historical records were... Uh, were kept. It, yeah. Men kept records about men um, and high politics and not about... Um, the powers behind the throne, because after all, I mean, William was never going to say it's all down to my wife, because no. he was a great self-publicist, you know, and yeah. um, that wasn't in his personality. But I, I would be interested to see if they do find documents that maybe she's written or, or there has been yeah, well, uh, captured uh, by somebody uh, else. My guess is most of what's come to light has come to light, and 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 that's not happened, uh, and it's it, it's punishingly rare that you get, first of all, a literate woman in those societies at that time, um, which, which is the biggest handicap. So what you do get is quite a lot of oral histories. Um, yeah. But the oral histories are some they're critical in, in societies where you don't have the written word. So almost everything of the research I've done about Shaka Zulu, that was a, a pre-literary society, it is based on what people subsequently wrote down of the oral history. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm used to having to struggle with that, but what tends to happen around bowls is that all the oral histories have confused several characters and turned them into one. Yes. Bowles has three different personalities, he lived in three different states and he was three different people. Uh, you know, all mashed into one if you're not careful. Uh, and yeah. I've tried my best to not unravel everything because sometimes the mishmash is more exciting anyway but I've tried 
to yeah. not fall into the most obvious pitfalls of assuming that just because someone has the same name, it's the same person. Yeah. Of course, yeah, because that, that is an easy assumption to make. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it, that's what I try and do, particularly because I'm writing my own historical, and it, it's a case of I try to avoid falling into those pitfalls of making sure that I'm not one-sided, that right. I remember that there's more to the story than just, you know, one or two two names or one or two opinions or one or two outlooks to it all. Um, you know, and I, I try and go out my way for that reason because I think, well, you know, what what works here? What is it that I'm missing? Yeah. You know, there's there's always more to there's not just one side of the story, oh. there's multiple sides Absolutely. to every story. There, there are hundred and forty two historical characters in my book about William Augustus Bold. Yeah. People who existed who get a mention. Um and you know a lot of them were living their own lives, they just happened to intersect with something that William was doing. And so you're right, there are yeah. lots of different narratives and, and perspectives about the period and um lots of different ambitions and lots of people who you know for a brief period, their interests might have coincided with William, so they appear to be an ally, but for most of the rest of their lives, you know, their trajectory is very different. So, uh, yeah, it's a, you've got to decide when to stop somewhere as well, of course. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not always good at that, so you disappear down some <laughs> rabbit holes for, for a while. We all go down rabbit yeah. holes, let's, let's just be honest well, you know. here. It's, it's hard to write a book and not go down a rabbit hole or for two. Sure. You know, um, and that's what a great writer is for, is almost to just kind of pull us back to the, uh, I would say, to where we should be and be like, yeah, let's get back to right. where we should be, you know, because I'm, I'm terrible for going off on tangents as well. And I think it's because I'm trying to do the, uh, the story justice. Yeah, I, I do. And, you, you know, you, you find out the other trouble is once you become sort of obsessed, for want of a better word, with a character, then everything about him is interesting to you because yes. he's the thing that you're writing about and you're trying to find out about and so everything you find out you find interesting but it's back to our earlier conversation about it doesn't necessarily mean that the reader's going to find that interesting so i was exactly. i was just doing a bit of editing this morning and, and i had the dimensions of this building in philadelphia in because they were interesting to me because it was a quite an important building because it, it Philadelphia, you know, City of Liberty, it was where a lot of the, yep. the revolution stuff happened. But nobody cares whether the front of this building was 100 feet long or not. They really don't. Only, only I care. Just get a sense of how big it was. But um, yep. you know, as long as you say it's big, most people are happy. So, <laughs> exactly. Taking those dimensions out. Sadly, you know. They're in my, they're in my <laughs> notebook, though. I'll always know. Yeah, but you know, you've learned something as well. If you could, you could take it in that yeah, way. Absolutely. So, when it comes to books and the books that you've been reading, what is the book that you've read most recently that you would say is stuck with yeah, you the so, most? Yeah. So, so, funnily enough, it's a book I always meant to read, uh, and my brother and I are very different. So, my, so I'm kind of five foot nine. I had brown hair, brown eyes. My brother's like six foot one, blonde hair, blue eyes. Uh, he took yep. off my dad, I took off my mum. Uh, and so if my brother was reading something, I probably wouldn't read it. 
Uh, yep. It was a kind of rivalry thing. Um, by the time I was 12, my brother was 10. He was already bigger than me. And he used to sit on me. Um, so I had to find my own, <laughs> my own way of being different. And, and it wasn't going to be physically. So, well, well yep. I was different physically, but I was never going to win that one. So anyway, I can remember my brother reading um, lots of Ursula Le Guin uh, when, when we were kids. And so I didn't. Even that, it right. was in a genre that I really was interested in, which is just like I was cutting your nose off to spite your face, you silly teenage. Of course, yeah. Anyway, so I decided recently to, to put that right, and uh, a while ago I, I found a nice uh, one one volume collection of the first three of the Earth Three novels. Uh, right. And I bought I bought it in a lovely little bookshop uh, in Aviemore in Scotland, and it had kind of sat on my shelf for a while while I was doing other things. And I thought. I fancy a bit of an escape, so I'm, get, I'm going to read them. And, but, yeah. you know, I kind of knew what they were going to be about. Um, what yeah. I had not really anticipated is what a great literary figure she was. I mean, she just yeah. writes so, so well. Uh, her descriptions are just so economical and powerful. Um, you know, she treats fantasy like high literature without making it inaccessible, and that must be the greatest accolade I could give her. So they, they had, they, they, they moved me and they inspired me. Um, and one day I want to write a fantasy uh, cycle as well. So, um, you know, I'll never okay. her uh, standards, but, but it, I feel empowered by having read her work to believe yeah. that you, you know, you can write fantasy with, if you like, literary flourishes without it seeming foolish. And I think that was yeah, so that thing struck me. Oh, I read, I read her last year, and I, it was the planet hopping killed it for me, <laughs> because I couldn't, I couldn't get my head around it, um, and then I felt so bad because I'm like, why am I not understanding this? This this is awful, Crystal. What what's going on here? Um, but I was doing it for a literacy course, and I've learned that if you're reading for coursework. And you're reading for pleasure is two different oh, things. Oh, completely. I completely. You know, and I wish I wish I'd be I wish I could pick her up and enjoy her, but also pick her up and understand her a bit better. And maybe in a few years when I'm a bit older and my right my reading levels come on a bit more, I might be able to follow the the story a lot better than how I how I actually did. Um, but yeah, she was yeah she was something of. She was very unique in her thought process and in her detail. I will give you that. Yeah. I thought I found her really interesting. Yeah. yeah. So that's. So if you had infinite time to sit and just read and enjoy, you know, yeah. books, you get a series and an author. Right. What series would you read? And what author would you read? Now remember, they can't be from the same. The series can't be the same author okay. as you would read. So, so I, I kind of done, did this. So, so I'm going to say what I've already done, I suppose. So, so it, this is going to sound incredibly pretentious, but it, it wasn't really meant to be. Um, right. When I was, I guess, at uni, my wife was doing French, mainly French at uni, and um, I became a bit interested in in Marcel Proust. A la recherche de l'interdu, so in search of lost time, I guess is the English translation. Right. And it's a very, very long series of books. Um, so many, many thousands of pages. 
which yeah, were yeah. all sparked by one moment. And the moment was that he was, I think he was in a cafe, I can't really know that, someone was threatening I think he was in a cafe and he, he was having a coffee and he was having a Madeleine, you know, one of those nice little uh, um, sponge uh, cakes that, that they had in France. That's right. And it was just the taste of a Madeleine reminded him of something in his childhood. And from there, he wrote basically his life from being a little child to being a kind of young, uh, I don't know, middle age maybe. Uh, and it all started from that one moment. Um, so they're incredibly long and they are basically intensely descriptive um, and a lot of them are about the manners of you know kind of the late Victorian period or maybe a bit later um, so they're not on yeah. cup of tea uh, and they take quite a lot of reading and they're quite heavy and you think Ursula Le Guin can be a bit wordy these are very wordy because they were written you know yeah. in their era um, but because they're so time but what you get is you get an incredible insight into quite an odd map um, He's very honest about kind of what's making him tick and how he's interacting and how he's growing. And I think at the time when I was still working out who I was, you know, that's what uni's for after all. I guess that's yeah. why it was of particular appeal. But only someone with as much time on their hands as, you know, the long summer vacations is probably going to find it easy to get through that those poems in any any. Uh, manageable uh, length of years. So, so that's yeah, my, that's the long one, the long run. Now, if I just go yeah. and read an author, um, it, I'm kind of torn. I I always think I should just go back and read all Shakespeare's plays again. Um, this is what you say. Okay. You know, when you're made to study something, it's one thing. When you read it for pleasure, it's another. And I was kind of lucky. I yeah. had a good English teacher when I was first introduced to Shakespeare, and so he didn't ruin Shakespeare for me, but having to revise it for exams kind of did ruin the plays that I was revising for exams for me. Yeah. Um, but when I was, I guess, about that age, I inherited my grandmother's complete work for Shakespeare, which was a yeah. four-form English guide in 1910. It's got the plate inside it. Um, so it's yeah. a precious object because I love my grandmother and uh, it was hers and she had to leave school at 14 you know so that was like the last year she was there uh, yeah. and I, I've always wondered would she have been a writer or something because she clearly loved that the, the storytelling and all that so I kind of think if I'm going to re read somebody I probably will go back to Shakespeare because like in a really pretentious way I kind of think there's something similar with the way yeah. Shakespeare wrote his history and the process of anybody writing a historical novel because he basically had Holinshed's Chronicles these are these outline stories of, of major historical events and he just used them to riff off in order to create his his stories and isn't that what we all do we find those kind of touchstones or you know the, the frame of a story somewhere where someone's expressed it nice and clearly and that that's the framework that, that, that allows yeah. us to then build around it um and I'm no Shakespeare at all, at all, at all. But nevertheless, yeah. his process and mine are not that different. You know, I I found one book about William Augustus Bowles, and from that spot yeah. of that one book, the landmark for the man's life, the book I'm writing is, is, is kind of emerging. So 
There you go. I bet you didn't think you were going to get Proust and Shakespeare as the answer, but there we go. No, I, I kind of did because <laughs> of the, your passion and the way that you you present yourself and the you know you're such a great um, voice for that. I actually did. Good. I was just curious as to see if it was going to be more modern sort of writers it could have been. that have it could have been. I, changed. I, I, yeah. I don't just read classics at all. I mean, I read lots and lots and lots. I mean, so I could as easily... I will put you on the spot. Have you read Catherine Cookson? I haven't read Catherine Cookson. I, I'm, not, I'm not big into... Tut, tut, tut. No, I know. <laughs> um, so, so I've got a lot of blind spots. Uh, and, you know, I, I would say that the kind of covers that Catherine Cookson books had when I was a teenager, uh, yeah. would make a boy run a mile. Uh, uh, of course, that, yeah. That's the issue. I mean, I still, I, I would still say this applies. So if you look at most romance novels, the kind of covers, particularly in America, that they, ah. that they put on the cover of a book, would make most yeah. sane people, I guess, yeah, no, say, no. run a mile. We'd, we'd, I mean, if you put those yeah. covers on the cover of Bridgerton, who would read it? I, I don't get it. But anyway, so Catherine Cook... But what I will say path, is... I completely you know, recognise Catherine is not romance. No, no, but, you know. but her suggests that she is. Yeah, um, pe- pe- people make that mistake about her all the yeah. time because yeah. of the covers yeah. and I did read, judging books by covers I did and read stuff, women, you know, you know historical, who wrote historical fiction. So Mary Renault was the first, the first who, as a teenage boy that I, I read, who, for yeah. my eyes, the, you know, uh, sort of that Greek, uh, the Greek yeah. stories, which obviously... Yeah, so uh, fertile to, to, to write about. Um, I was just going to say, if you want me to throw out another name, though, it's completely, utterly different. I, I would say I really admire Alexander McCall Smith. Who, okay. Who You'll have to give us a why for that one. Well, because he is a fantastically talented writer. He has such a command of language. If you read, if you read right. his 44 Scotland Street books or if you read his... Uh, Mara Moxway book set in Botswana. They are entirely accessible. They they seem to be uh, it's never really used big words, but that is the same art as Hemingway. You know, right. It, the ability you read the old man in the sea. There's not a big word in it. There's only hundred pages in it, but it's powerful. And yeah. Alexander McCall Smith has that same skill that he is just a naturally talented writer. As I understand it, he doesn't ever have to. Um, review anything he writes. He writes at three thousand words an hour and doesn't have to check it. It's just done, which is why he's been wow. able for all these years to write a chapter a day in the Scotsman, the forty-four Scotland Street series, you know, in the Dickensian yeah. kind of tradition, um, and and you know keep them pumping out. And I don't know how many of those serial have been serialized into books now. It must be well into double figures. Um, and yeah. it's, it's just a charming evocation of his love of Edinburgh and some quirky characters, and he makes me smile. And equally, yeah. the, the the book set in Botswana, Mara Motsway, is about his love of that part of the world, which he knows well. And but he managed to write in a stu- a different style. You know, when he's writing yeah. about Edinburgh, it's like somebody from Edinburgh writing about Edinburgh. When he's writing about Botswana, there's a different rhythm. It feels more like is this what Botswana feels like? You know, and, that, and to be able to do that without actually explicitly often describing it, I think, is, is amazing. Um, and, and so he's prolific, he's very literate, but he's also very economical uh, in his use of language. And I often, yep. when I'm looking at something I've written, think, 
Sir Alexander McCallsmith would have used half as many words, and it would have been more powerful. So get a grip yeah. to try and be more like him. So there you go. I love that. That is that is pretty awesome answer, to be honest. What author do you wish that you could, you know, if you had a chance to sit down and speak with? Um, and you know, it can be past, it can be present, yeah. it can be futuristic. Who would you choose and why? So, that's a great question, and I, I would love to know how Alexander McCoy Smith was educated because I'd love to understand how it, whether it's, it's just natural how he does it. But I, I'll, I'll pick somebody right. else. So, so let's pick a different genre as well. So, um, Ian M. Banks. I, I mean, he also writes Ian Banks, of course. But yep. just thinking about the, him writing, the, yeah. harder sort of sci-fi in that persona, in that genre, um, yeah. it has an amazing imagination. And I, I think... He does. And yeah. because he operates in those two very different worlds of, you know, really quite literary fiction and and something that isn't necessarily seen as literary. But again, like Le Guin, I think what he's doing in his genre is, is taking it seriously uh, and, and writing about it yeah. as if all those people reading it might also be considering it for the Booker Prize, you know, and I think that's marvellous. Um, I just think he'd be really interesting because he's clearly got layers. Yeah. Um, and I'd like to talk to him about how, you know, that whole image of that, those interlocking worlds in what he calls the culture, you know, where that all came from, um, how he developed it. Uh, again, partly to cheat because although I don't think I'll ever write kind of anything as science fiction as he, I do have an ambition to write, as I say, a fantasy cycle, and, and I think some of those lessons yeah. would, would, would be uh, would transfer well to thinking about world world building. Yeah, no, it would definitely, and I think everybody that we choose to read and we choose to to have in our writing is super important. Um, so yeah, I think I think that's it's very very important, and it's incredible to kind of see and understand is there an author past and present who's influenced inspired and made you excited about books now it has to be a separate author for influenced inspired and made you excited oh goodness me so so i, I think bernard Corn i don't give easy uh, questions right, right. here I think bernard cornwall um Right. Has, has influenced me in thinking about how to write historical fiction uh, because I think he does a good job and you know yeah. I first encountered him reading the Sharp book uh, which was in the Napoleon era which is an era that I write in and so that, 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 that's definitely been an influence I, I also love the way he's able to turn his hand to so many different periods and seem authentic um, so that, that's something I aspire to um, anyway, so that so he's one. That was that yeah. was influence. What were the other two uh, words I've got to? So make? inspired. So, so so I've done influence. So inspired. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Tricky. Very tricky to pick one. Um. Because <laughs> there are a lot. Um, yeah. I, I'm going to go sort of back uh, a long way, and this. Again, will probably be controversial to some, but but I, I think so. There's a guy who uh, called Captain W. E. Johns who wrote two right. books from I think his first book was written after the first world, after the first world war, through yeah. through past the second world war into the fifties. 
Um, and they're very, very uh, of their time. But they're adventure stories uh, based around, he had several, but the main character in, that, that was most known a guy called Biggles, who, who was, you know, a boy's own hero. And Captain W. Johns wrote boy's own books about this hero character, Biggles. He wrote book after book after book after book of them. And uh, yeah. they're just rip roaring yarn for boys. I read my dad. You know, and yeah. what's more wonderful than reading the books that your dad read, and you're reading the same book your dad read, you know, many years later. Um, and it, it, it opens up a world uh, that you would never it, have otherwise exactly. experienced. And, and these books were set, a lot of them, in, in the period that my dad lived through, that, you know, I was born after. So there was so yeah. that sense that, because in no way could they be taken as history, uh, they're just adventure stories. But, but, I was kind of thinking about my dad's life and the period in which these books were written and you know, right. the fact that Biggles' sidekick called Ginger and my dad's best friend was Ginger, was called Ginger, in a time when, you know, that was the sort of nickname people have. Um, kind, of, <laughs> kind of time. But the bottom line is, I, I like, I, it's quite hard to get hold of the books now, you can, but they're not fashionable because they're full of the sort of attitudes of the 20s and 30s and 40s which yes sit comfortably with, with a modern audience now i i don't have a problem reading them because i'm a historian by training you know i read history at university and i i don't judge someone because they're a product of their time and i can step aside from that but i understand yeah. why some of the things in those books would offend people who those, of uh, so I'm not saying anybody's right or wrong here. I kind of think it's sad that a lot of good rip-roaring stories are kind of being missed by generations because of a few, what we would now see as misplaced attitudes. But equally, we don't want to perpetuate those attitudes at all. I totally agree. And I'm not really a fan of rewriting people's work. To make no, I don't think people's more, work should be rewritten. You know, acceptable so i guess we can start there we yeah. are. anyway so that's that's captain we john's i'll fly the flag for him despite the fact that he's a product of uh, very much the last century uh and what was my third uh excited, excited. made you excited yeah. about books yeah. excited um what am i going to go for um so i think i'm going to say stephen donaldson so Stephen Donaldson wrote a series of books, uh, fantasy books, um, right. where the main character was a leper. Near leprosy. And okay. uh, he finds himself transported to a, another world, a fantasy yeah. world, if you like. And he's, a, he's completely an anti-hero. He's a coward, he's craven, he doesn't want to be there. Everything he does is self-serving and about self-preservation but entirely by accident he gets drawn into being like the most fundamental character in the whole of this world and his right. his choices are shaping everything that's happening in the world and very gradually yep. over about six books uh this series called uh the, the, the chronicles of thomas covenant the unbeliever i think they're called um, right. um chart I guess his development a bit, and I just found them so exciting, so all-absorbing. 
I'm so immersed. I got so immersed in the world that you know it was a case of you read one for the last page, you just picked up the next one and just kept going. You didn't want to be interrupted or anyone to come near you. Yeah. So they had that real, real uh, uh, excitement about them. So yeah, Stephen Donaldson wrote wrote a couple more in the same series many years later. Now I don't know if I'd changed or whether they were a little bit different, but they just didn't do it for me in, in the same way probably. But the first six were just exciting. Yeah. I think I think when we grow our our tastes change and our kind of Yeah, but the writer's twenty years older change. too. I wondered I don't I don't know I, I, I can't objectively do it. You know, I, I need to go back and read those right. six books again, don't I to see. But which is they're on, that I've kept them, they're on my shelf. Um yeah. so there's there's another I I do think though that our when we are as we age, you know, it does have an impact sure, of course. on yeah. what we what we like and what we don't like and what we think and what we you know what we take for granted. I always like to say, yeah, um, yeah. and I think that's very much the case with with what what we're talking about. And I mean, I myself there was a lot I didn't like. Um, about sort of the historical world that I was reading and then as I grew older I kind of understood a lot more of the traditional works because I I expanded my world view and I expanded my education Um, and I think that's really important and I think people almost like have this attitude of oh well I didn't like that and they just you know they throw it down or they fling it in the bin and, yeah you know be done with it and i was never like no, that. I, i'm, I'm I, totally with you i had to look at I, them, I, I, yeah. I, I followed quite a few facebook groups where people are forever talking about did not finish book dnf i'm thinking yeah. and, and one or two people are brave enough to say i never have a dnf and i'm one of those i've bought the book or found it yeah. I, you know, someone took the trouble to write it i will read it to the end it, it might not be my cup of tea i might not ever read another one but I'm going to get to yep. the end of it. I, you know, I mean, goodness me, uh, why would you give up on a book? I, I don't, you know, for me, I think it's also very hurtful a, to the author form, to have somebody write that, and then and then to out them publicly by saying, "I couldn't finish this book." It's like that's more about yep. you than the book. At the end of the day, it's there's a lot more about your lack of application, or, or unless yep. there are other things in the person's life, in which case, just don't post about it. Is my view. But you know, bottom line, read a book. You know, do the yep. courtesy of going from the beginning to the end. I would say, uh, sure. and I think I think there's so many uh, there's such an attitude of let's just post everything we feel. Yeah, all I'm not the time. A lot of comments about that because I'm 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 yeah. near a sixties and I'm and uh, so I'm I'm product of the world before you know the internet. And I, and I, I, the, I don't think it does anybody. It may be no. hugely cathartic for some people, but I think people expose themselves to um, more than I would have thought was healthy very often. Uh, if it is healthy for them, great, but it doesn't seem to be for, for many people. And, you know, there are a yeah. whole series of, um, well, I'm going to call them illnesses, one of the better words that people seem to suffer from now, that are a product of the existence of this media, which seems to be tragic. Uh, and, and I think yeah. being my age entirely insulates me against any of it. Um, yeah. Which makes me, me the lucky one, I think. 
I think I think it's it's a shame that people think it's acceptable to hurt other people when they're not having the best time themselves. Uh, absolutely. And that is the day and age we're in, where people think it's funny to be rude to people, and it's it's okay to talk to certain people in a certain way, when actually it's not okay. I would, I would and, agree with you. Yeah. 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 And I've I've learned, uh, you know, that the old saying that my my grandmother had of "bite your tongue." Exactly. But there's only so many times you can well, bite that tongue. Well, that's right. To like, you know, a nice story. I th- I think it was Eisenhower, certainly one of the, one of the American presidents of the 20th century. I think it was Eisenhower said, yeah. and I just sort of totally paraphrase, but he said something like, you know, I quite often write a letter in anger. Obviously, we're yes. back in the days but I but I always put it in a drawer. Yeah. And I get it out the next morning, and he says, well, I've never sent one yet. No. And I think that is no. exactly what we all need is a filter. And yeah. Yeah. technology just makes it too easy not to operate a filter. You know? I mean, and, you know, we've all done something when maybe we've had a couple of tunics. Angry. Or whatever. Yeah. 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 I, I don't do that on, online. Um, so no. that at least reduces my exposure. Um, and I, I can I freely yeah. admit that, you know, when I was at, say, at university behaving badly, there was no one filming it. As we you know, did. It, it didn't get posted anywhere. So, you know, no. I, my friends will take it to the grave and that's the end of it. Um, and I feel I feel for people whose lives have to be lived under a different level of scrutiny. I think that, that, that's awful. Um, and that's one of the yeah. reasons I write historical fiction, is I, I, I've said this to my wife more than once, is that I will never write a book which involves the internet. Or where the internet can exist, exist. Not even will I write a book where the mobile phone exists, because I can't yeah. successfully plot a, a book where those technologies exist, because I don't live in that world. You know, my mobile yeah. phone lives in the glove box of my car, and I use it when the car breaks down. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I have, I still have a landline. Um, reception yeah. on the Isle of Skye has been diabolical for mobile phones until very recently. It's it's, it's never had the best. No, I'll give you that. It's never been much use to me. Uh, So so I haven't ever been, you know, I haven't got sucked into that little screen and and, and lived in that world. Uh, And I make no apologies about it. And I I have to say I'm not sorry about it. And if I'm missing out on book or whatever, you're you're not missing out. Uh, You can see it. I'm smiling away as I say that. I mean, for me, I did... I don't know if you know my work, but I wrote a, a series called um, Marie's World, and it was about the idea of how far can a twin relationship be pushed till it breaks. Right. And the idea of it was that one twin's made it, she's famous, she's this big dancer, and this other twin, she's super jealous of that. She's, yeah. She, she can't get her head around that her sisters made yeah. it and all the rest of it and so she takes her sister's diaries and she publishes them into the world mm. all of the bad stuff yeah. all the yeah. stuff that you empty out to that safe space is there and people are reading it yeah. and she flees and she flees in a way to try and kind of get her head right and to figure out what she's going to do next and how she's going to deal with this and 
it doesn't get any better for her because she has to then make a decision of do I go back and help the little sister that betrayed me or what do I do like what is this this decision I've got to make and it's a series so you're not just getting Marie's version you get to go into Layla's head you get to go into the the father who was the catalyst of this entire thing so you get to experience everybody's journey and you get diary entries and you get you know letters and texts and I use as many media forms as possible to try and bring people into the present world but also show them what the present world has done to what would have been two very strong sisters. Yeah, it's very interesting. And of course, and of course, they're sisters. So there's that bond that's been betrayed, which is like a an even yeah. deeper betrayal than if it was his brother and sister. I mean, you know that. that. Exactly, yeah. and that's what I thought to myself yeah. when I wrote it was, yeah. what would be the worst yeah. of the worst to, to right. for somebody to do to somebody else? Yeah. And I didn't want to write a murder. I didn't want to write. Sure you know, something along those lines. I wanted to write something that would catch their, you know, catch a breath in somebody's lungs and just be like, okay, what, what can I, what can they learn from this? Yep. Um, so if you do ever adventure into a book that tackles those issues, that tackles an issue of, you know, like, what is it that a couple of women would put up with, or how far could a couple of women go, then that is, I would recommend reading that, because I've done it in that, that humanized way, that character-based way. Fascinating. I've just realized that I've I've actually, I suppose I've misspoken slightly, because the the book I'm writing about William Augustus Bowles, um, there is um, a thread running through it of, of email exchanges that start with email exchanges uh, between right. one of his descendants and a, and a university professor so I have actually got email in a book of mine but but it's not set in the period if you like that's just a bit of the yeah. kind of reflecting some of the issues uh, that, that are being uh, narrated uh, being yeah. by, by people with very different perspectives uh, about the character uh, in the present, so so I, I I have been brave enough to go down that that line to to an extent, but there's nothing controversial about their exchanges no. technologically, although, no. um, and they do come closer to agreement in some ways about the character, but in the end, they are from different yeah. worlds, and and that, that that remains the case. One is an academic, and he has made a reputation rubbishing William <laughs> and the other one is a direct descendant of William and has a you know inevitably even if she doesn't think he was great in every way an ambivalent attitude because she wouldn't have existed without him yeah so anyway I think I think that's a really good way of looking at it and I think we have to kind of come up with these ways of pushing but pushing in a way that we're opening people's minds yeah without preaching Without, without preaching, telling yeah. them how they should think about it, yeah. Um, but yeah. but at least opening their, them up to different ways you might think about. 
Yeah, and just saying, hey, you know what, things aren't simple. Right. Yeah, yeah. Things aren't Absolutely. easy. You know, there is going to be times where you think, what the hell did I get involved in? Why am I, why am I doing yeah. this? Yeah. Um, but there, there's always that humanistic. We all need connection. Yeah, exactly. Quite right. We all need love, and I think that that's what I try to yeah. portray through mine is that. You know, even though her sister's done this in terribly cruel, cruel thing, she still wants to be loved. Yeah. She still wants that attachment, that that feeling of bonded to her sister, even though she spent her entire life running after her sister and trying her best to protect her sister right. at every possible, yep. you know, turn and, and not, never being appreciated for it. Yeah. Um, yep. I think I think a lot of sisters, you know, as I'm saying this, will be nodding their heads and going, "Yes." Yeah, well, I can't, I can't, but, I can't, I can't speak for sisters, but but I, I, my brother and I had a. It's, it actually, it's interesting. So, I'm now 58, and he's 56, and yeah. we get on much better now than we ever have, and we're much yeah. more alike now than we ever were. Still yeah. pretty different, but. Even he, I think, would, would acknowledge that, and 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 that has taken us both by surprise. I think I don't know if he ever said it out loud, but you know, even twenty years yeah. ago, we couldn't really hang out together for more than a day. It was best if we were like, oh, I'll come and see you for the day. That'd be nice. We, we were fine, yeah. but we were just so yeah. different, and it just didn't really, you know. And it's not to say you don't love your relatives because we're kind of wired that way, but you know, it didn't. It, didn't, it was never that easy, and it's a lot easier now. It's no. quite interesting. You were saying earlier about how we, we all change our attitudes to, to books, and I think life as well, of course, because books are a reflection of life. Um, anyway, enough about that. Um, another question. I, th- I another think question. it's good because I think we're we're teaching uh, we're accidental teaching. You know, it's like they're accidentally learning the how important love is and about these important facts. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, although why anyone would listen to a 58-year-old man living on the other sky is, is any... Why, you, why would somebody listen to a disabled 33-year-old uh, woman? Yeah. I mean, well, you could have that argument with their Well, I, you know, I, I would feel strongly that, you know, voices that have historically been marginalised really should be listened to. And I'm not saying that just because it's a special thing to say, but as I said earlier, my mum had MS uh, for almost all yeah. of my existence. My aunt was born profoundly deaf. Um, so I've lived amongst people who, you know, who whose lives have not been entirely straight straightforward, and, and you know, who for much of it were largely forgotten or, or regarded as embarrassment. Um, no, so, I mean you're so, right. So, we're we're not you know, we're not given something that privileged group who have always been listened to and yeah. are now experiencing what it's like maybe to not be listened to so much. It's it's much harder yeah. as a, a late middle aged man to get a book published than it is as a a younger female writer, um, and I'll say that, and people might not like that, but it's it's statistically, it, it's a fact, and it's it's partly in some ways, yeah. Of, but if you you, know, you have to kind of add in the factors of, I mean, I find it incredibly more difficult to get published because I'm a disabled female writer. That shouldn't, and be the they case. don't want to work with disabled writers. Right. I mean, you know, it it shouldn't be the case, and it certainly, you know, um, given that. The vast majority of fiction readership is female. It shouldn't yeah. come as a surprise to anyone that it's, it's now easier as a female to get published 
than, 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 than as a male. It's not easy for either gender, by the way, because the public is in a complete turmoil. Um, because yes. overall, reading is contracting, and they're very risk averse. So, so they just want to publish, you know, um, safe but, novels, right? And 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 a lot of other stuff that isn't obvious as well. You know, that, that, that they know will sell. Um, but anyway, yeah, they know uh, what they're getting I don't into. Want to be on that yeah. soapbox today. Let's get off that soapbox. You know, because. Well, here, here on the Book of Life podcast, we, we talk about these things because um, people are normally too scared to. Yeah. And I think, I I feel like, honestly, a lot of the time I have to be that voice right. of reason and voice of, um, you know, to be able to say, hey, this isn't right. How do we address yep. it? Yep. And... Uh, and go from there you know and just be like okay um what can we do now what what how do we get these voices and this this industry to be more inclusive not just you know bring back male writers but no, also no, right. to, to to do with everybody no. and i think i think it's a great thing yeah. um so that's why i encourage people to talk for about sure it. And I, i'm encouraged i see a lot more shout outs from publishers for um, yeah. you know diverse voices than ever before uh, uh, whether it's lip service or not I can't judge but but you know um, you never used to see that so it, it, it must be at least hopefully the tip of what might become an iceberg yeah yeah I uh, so if you were to travel back in time <laughs> yeah did you enjoy that question well yeah yeah because obviously my, my character in meeting Napoleon does that and so yeah. I spent quite a bit of time thinking about thinking it. about so yeah so if I could do it yeah. right what's the question so if you could travel back in time when would it be and what job would you choose to yeah. do yeah yeah so so I, I I mean a bit of me would like to go back to Napoleon's era because it's an era that I've thought about and written about and it'd be nice to know how close to getting it right how close you got yeah, it yeah partly um, but also just because I'm interested it, 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 it will be that will be quite tempting but yeah. uh, there are a lot of reasons why I wouldn't want to do that and I think the main the main is two really one one is never meet your heroes anyway so it probably I'd be deeply disappointed by everybody I encountered um, but actually I think yeah. the main reason is I, I think standards of healthcare would, would be Terrifying, and I have an absolute um, fear of the dentist. And um, I, I don't have the best mouth of teeth, but I've always tried to look after them. And um, I'm the same, yeah. Right. Uh, and I have a wonderful dentist who understands me. And I, although I live on the Isle of Skye and he's in Oxfordshire, uh, twice a year I make the pilgrimage to Oxfordshire so that he can look after my teeth. Uh, because oh, wow. so as I as I wouldn't be allowed, I assume, to travel back from the Napoleonic era. With him, my dentist. Uh, I, I well, I never said you couldn't. <laughs> well, I never said well, you I, couldn't take anybody. But so. being realistic, I don't think Tim would want to go. I think he's got a very nice life where he is. Uh, um, so I think realistically, I would be a bit averse to travelling too far back in time uh, because of life being nasty, brutish, and short uh, too, too too often. Uh, is, is my true answer. So I think I'd go for the 60s. I'd like to have been older in the 60s. I was a little boy in the 60s, and I'd like to have been a, a teen, young, young adult in the 60s, because I think that's right. been a, ty a time to be alive and participating yeah. 
when optimism about the world was the dominant, just maybe only for two or three years. But I think to have experienced that would have been... I, I know there was also, at the same time, terror of nuclear war. Don't get me wrong, it wasn't perfect. Uh, but, yep. but I think it would have been... To be fair, we're back there, so... Culturally, I, I, I think I would have loved to, to have been immersed in kind of the, the Beatles era. Uh, I'm a massive fan of that era of music, you know. To, to have yeah. seen Jimi Hendrix performing his pomp, all those sort of things, for me, would have been... Yeah, that would have been something. So I'll go with, I'll go with the 60s. Yeah, I mean, for me, I'd, I'd want to be back in Catherine Cookson's time and I would want to submit my first ever book uh, to a publisher in that time period because I would have had I wouldn't have the people saying to me you're dyslexic we don't want to work right. with you um, I would have a, I would have had much more open um, feedback and I think it would have been a lot nicer a scenario for me. Right. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, and I think I'd like to have met her and just to be able to say to her, you know, you gave me the ability right. and the power to to write when I didn't think that was yeah. impossible. Yeah. You know? I'm sure I'm sure because I don't think she ever no. knew how much Exactly. I was she say, I'm sure she'd be absolutely delighted that it would be a, be a high point of her, her career to have, have people say that. Yeah, because you've got to remember, she had a she had a blood disorder that they couldn't cure, and she couldn't have children, yep. and she suffered with severe depression, and then her body completely gave up on her, oh. to the point she couldn't even do the thing that she loved, yeah. which was writing. Yeah, she was amazing, amazingly prolific, yeah. considering all of her. Well, yeah, I mean, see what she could do with a tape right. recorder right. was incredible, and she even still managed to get the voice of the everyday person yeah. not you know it was nothing fancy it was the everyday person yeah. really came through and I think that's what I admire most mm. than anything yep. she really did change the game Yeah. Um, so Ooh. you know yeah. maybe I'm an old no. I'm an old record uh, but yeah, I have a I have a super super soft spot. Yeah. Um, Nothing wrong with that. Has there ever been a book that you have picked up and wished that you hadn't? Now the reason well, I okay. asked this before you, yeah, you okay. answer is because I'm trying to show uh, reviewers and uh, readers out there that there is a way to turn around and say this book wasn't for yeah, me. Yeah, I've got one. I've got one. I'm, I'm... I'm, I'm loath. I'd rather, if you don't mind, I'd rather not actually name the book, but just tell the story around it, so that it'll yeah. deal with the issue I think you want to raise. So, so yeah. I was asked to review a book by by someone I know. Yes. Um, and um, he's a an accomplished artist, a multimedia artist, and yeah. Um, I can't name his wife because he could identify them quite quickly if I if I say what she does. Because small world she works in but she's very talented too yeah. anyway um he, he's um he's also a retired policeman i don't know i can say that before i about anyway uh so he, he asked me to review the the one novel that he'd, he'd written and um 
it was unlike anything else I'd ever read, uh, mainly because it was like three bits of novels stitched together that didn't really work together. Right. Um, the, the, the first third was uh, a kind of, almost a kind of biblical fantasy feel about it and was, was quite okay. quite beautifully written. Um, yeah. And then the second third was, was kind of gritty and set in Glasgow. Right, uh, and then the third uh, element was was set elsewhere elsewhere in, in Scotland, and you could kind of imagine the second and third bits being part of the same novel, but the first bit, not not so much, and it's right. most like. But there was some beautiful writing in it, um, yeah. and there was some interesting insights in it. Um, yeah. But it wasn't a novel, and uh, but I I'd, I'd undertaken to, do, to to review it, and yeah. and indeed. It, that included reviewing it on Amazon, what I said I'd do. So, so I, I had a real challenge, and I think this is exactly what you're getting at, is how do you respect the fact that this wasn't for me as a book? Indeed, yeah. I couldn't entirely see the logic of it all being put together in the one book. Right. Um, but there was no way... I was going to renege on my promise to review it, and there was no way that I was going to do the same thing offensive because it's just my opinion at the end of the day. Someone else might feel yeah. differently. So uh, I'm going to paraphrase, but roughly my review, for which on Amazon I gave it three stars, so I just thought that's in entirely neutral. It doesn't touch on yeah. anything or the other. My first line of my review was if five people read this book, they'd probably all give it a different number of stars. Okay. Um, which is me acknowledging that there'll be someone else out there for whom this, love what I thought was a mishmash, would be their thing. Yeah. Equally, and possibly this is how I really felt about it, I didn't really think it was a novel, so it might have been one star. Um, but there was good yeah. writing in it. Anyway, so I averaged those two and I gave it three so it didn't do any damage, if you like, or nothing significant. Yeah. Um, how did, that, how did that go down? If you like, to describe the strength of the writing. And yes. the and point out the interesting juxtaposition of the three different sections, um, which you I know, know I said you know for some people might might prove challenging and for others might be stimulating. And I, I, I basically I gave enough of an insight that people would know that it wasn't a standard novel. That yes. you know therefore approach with if you like caution or have a sample first. You know get it on. Unlimited or whatever it is you can do. Yeah. I'm not very techy. Um, but so my so my my takeaway on this was I gave it a review. I didn't tell any untruths about either the book. I gave a bit of a descriptive, a descriptive kind of overview of the book. I pointed yeah. out some obvious strengths and potential what some people might see as you know not their cup of tea about it. So for me, you know, that, that that was the way I approached it because I'd already promised to deliver the review. If yeah. circumstances had been different and I hadn't known the author, yeah, I hadn't yeah. the author and I hadn't intended uh, to, to ever review it, I would not have reviewed it. You know, that yeah. would have been what I would have done. And if, um, you know, people think that's being... Um, Deceitful. Well, it isn't. All I'm doing is saying, 
the amount of damage a single negative review does to a writer is hugely disproportionate compared to many positive reviews. And yes. I wouldn't want it done to me. And without being deceitful, I do the respect of saying my opinion isn't worth so much as it's not worth somebody's career or somebody's, you know, the future of somebody's book. So confidence, as yeah. you said, bite my tongue. Um, yeah. And so that that would always be my attitude. I think I think it's confidence too, because I think a lot of people. I know for for me, I've had a, a, a could not finish and. It, it was awful. Yeah. It, it just, just wrecked me. Because I had put all this effort what? into making this fantasy novel easy to understand and easy to connect with from a, a completely innocent teenage perspective. And then to have five people write could not finish was just, it just floored me. Yeah. It floored me. So I decided when I did this podcast that I would bring it up and have everybody address it yeah. in their own way so that we can get across why we shouldn't do this and why what we say really matters to people, um, and, and especially in this day and age. I think, I think you're absolutely right. It's very difficult, though, isn't it, to say to somebody... Yeah. You, you, you're not entitled to your opinion or indeed to express it because we're not in the business of censorship. So what we're really saying is please exercise a little bit of judgment and, and think about context. Yeah. If, if, I, if, I, if I pick, you know, what, one of the biggest sellers in the world and say I didn't like it, it has zero effect on that writer. It has no effect. On, yeah. And actually, they, by virtue of the status that their book and, and, and they as writers have risen to, um, they're almost yes. legitimate targets, the wrong word, but it, it's legitimate to express your view on it because it becomes part of, you know, our, our right. shared culture. And I can't. Yeah, I you can't will find say, people. That sort of book really isn't my cup of tea. I don't know what all the fuss is about. And that doesn't do anybody yep. any harm. And I think that's fine. Yep. But if you know that you're realistically you're dealing with someone who's got, like my first book, got 24 reviews on Amazon at the moment, I think. Uh, with the Dabrazies. You're doing better than I yeah. am. My it's, latest you know one's only got one. One review there can skew the whole likelihood that anyone else is going to buy that book for me. And um, yeah. just being a bit aware that, as you said very much earlier, for very many writers, you know, um, it's not easy. They're not making a lot of money. Uh, they're not selling a lot of books. No. But it is very personal and important to them. And if you, if you show yep. a bit of awareness that that's what nearly all writers, if you've not heard a writer, that's probably the right way. I would agree with that. And, and, I think, yeah. I or, think there's there's so much of us that are fighting to get the reviews because that's what the publishers want. Right. That's what the publishers need to to see that we're doing well or. Yep. You know, it's not just the sale figures now. It's about how people are responding and how people are reacting to your work yep. and and this and that. They, they forget it's so difficult to get anybody to review in the first place. And then if somebody goes on to put a review on and they've enjoyed the book, there's a good chance they won't review it because yep. they will stop and go, oh, that person didn't enjoy it. Well, maybe I've done something wrong no. here. It's not easy. You know, yep. 
yeah, maybe I shouldn't shouldn't put up my thoughts or my review here because maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. I'm gonna say this: it's lazy. Publishers are being lazy, looking at yeah. that information, which is yeah. not policed particularly effectively. By no. um, is one thing. Uh, secondly, as you say, reviews that are depending on the genre, depending on the writer, all sorts of things can be very uh, misleading in terms of sales. Um, I think we yeah. probably all know that three times as many people have said to us that they will review our book as have actually reviewed it. And there's nothing, you, you can only ask about twice and you've just got to leave it alone. So, I, I, yeah. you know, it, it, publishers could try a bit harder to find other ways of judge it yeah. um, ah. or, or, or the famous thing I love when they say is oh tell us how you would market it you know like when you're thinking to yourself well I had a minute here I wrote it yeah. I fought to get it this far and now you're telling me that I've got to also yeah. now yeah. tell you how to totally market right. it but when they say so what you've got to do is tell me the two books it should sit between on Waterstone shelf. It's like, no, I don't think you understand your job anymore. You know, you're supposed to yep. tell me that. You know, I've done the art bit. Don't make me the business guy. I'm not the business guy. And yeah. and it's it's what ninety percent of us have no idea everything. about business. Unbel it's, un yeah. it's unbelievable. And I suspect most most of us, those of us who are with a small publisher who doesn't have a significant marketing budget spend at least as much time trying to get people to read our book as we did writing it and it's soul destroying. Because it is, it is everything about that process. I, I loathe all of it, and my, you know, I would much, much rather get a mid-sized publisher take me on and just do a bit, a bit of marketing for me than win the bloody yeah. lottery. I'd be much happier with just that happening. Yeah. That for me would be the most exciting thing that's happened to me in my life. To be honest, the most freeing, the most rewarding, and you can keep money. Yeah. I, I would just like my book to be out there to more people than I can get it out to because I'm not an marketing yeah. expert, I don't know what I'm doing and the one thing I'm not going to yeah. do is throw a load of money after it blindly to find that it has no effect. I mean, I would, to be honest, I would like the lottery money and if well, it's not for what you would think, I would want it so that I could, you know, being in that position of knowing I, have, I might have to do this myself, uh, you know, being able to then pick up a, a, a you know a publicist yeah, yeah. who I know and, you works incredibly well but is expensive right. and say right here's your budget yeah. if I don't see you turn around in three months um, then you're done yep, and I get that, I get that. you know yeah. like that that would be my solution to it yep. Yep, that's a I probably way. wouldn't be a fan favorite for doing it that way, right. but I I just I've gone into that point where I've done this for over ten years now, yep. and I am just done with the whole oh well you know you tell us how you want to do it how you want to market it yeah no I no. to me that's like the biggest slap in the face that, that uh, us as writers as we are writers we can get. You know, yep. it should it should never be like, it should never be like that. We should never have to tell somebody how to do their job. 
exactly. They should know how to do the job. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. So going into your writing, yep. how did you go about creating the darker elements in your story? Like, how did you get into that mindset, create that world that you could just disappear into? So I don't think there's dark, darker is, 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 is the word I struggle with a bit. Because as I say, my, my books are yarns, really, and, and they're, they're... Yeah. However, some, you know, I think war, you knew what I was going like, with it. So the Battle of Waterloo yeah, yeah. was my way in thinking in my first book about Napoleon. Uh, and there's plenty of, of things in that which are, you know, um, you've got to immerse yourself in, in what that battlefield would actually have been like in order to write about it effectively. So I'm the guy who owns yeah. 18 books about the uniforms of the battle, battles of 1815 and has read loads and loads of, of histories of the Battle of Waterloo, trying to find ways to do that so that was the first book the second book charter's rule was pretty bloody and he was pretty useless and there was a dark side to him um he almost went mad when his mother died and, and had slaughtered a lot of people so there was a genuine darkness there um and so he's a different he's a complex character to write about particularly as there's not a lot of as i say there's only really folk memories of of, of his life um so yeah. i've had to think about uh, sort of what his psychological makeup was like and, and why why he acted as he did and I've actually made yeah. him quite a sympathetic character in the books I've written so far which are relatively early in his, his reign um, but I'm setting up for where it, he goes off the rails later and how yeah. that's going to impact others um, and the way to do that is, is a combination of, of research and you do you know we all have darker days uh, you know, and depression yeah. is part of what affected Charter, without a doubt. And so we can all both research that, but also draw upon, you know, and amplify our own experiences. Yeah. Um, you know, I've, I've never really been dogged by these things, seriously, uh, fortunately. Um, but I, I did once have a bout of depression, which is a funny story, uh, which I'll, I'll briefly share. I, I had, I was in Zambia, and I had, I had. I was unwell, and I was so unwell yeah. that I, I couldn't really be parted from um, the toilet facilities for very long. I'll put it that way. And I, but I had yeah. to get on a flight back to London, and so I went to the doctor, um, and he said, um, "Well, as you know, Doctor Williams, um, I can give you these pills, and they'll do, do the job. Um, but they do have a psychological effect, and you will suffer from significant sort of depressive episodes for about three months." And I said, why do you say as I know? He said, well, you're a doctor, aren't you? And I said, I am a doctor, but not, not a medicine. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, you've got to kind of remind anyway, them of that, yeah. Pills and, I took them, and I said, it'll be fine. I've never really suffered significant depression. I'll be absolutely fine. And I was really depressed yeah. for a couple of months. Um, so that was my insight into, you know, the black dog on your shoulder and, and, and all of that. And so I drew on that, yeah. I drew on that um, chemically in, induced, but, but innocently. Um, experience yeah no I, I i mean i suffer from it and i'm i'm not i'm not someone that hides that and it no, is no. difficult yeah. i have days where when i get like 14 15 rejections come in yeah, exactly that's never a good day you yeah you you know what i mean I it's like you're just like oh fuck it i'm going back to bed um yeah. this isn't worth it yeah. so I, I get it yeah, you I, know I, um, I, I, i'm a coper so 
my coping strategies usually because of where I live is if that happens, I go climb a mountain. I go climb a mountain. Uh, take my mind off. See, I'm not able no, no, to no, do no, that. I, I, absolutely. Yeah. But, but so for me, I have to go and completely change the whole context that I'm yeah. operating in to get out of that. Um, and I think I'd love to be yeah. able to do and that. And if you can't do I, that, I'm, I'm I, waiting. I, I suspect yeah. I would I, be much more pro. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. to me, like I, I want to get, I want to escape it. Yeah. It, it, you know, it's that natural experience where, when I was having a really bad week. Um, I would go and I would ride horses and I would right. just yeah. that would do it. tear around yeah. on the beat, you know, on the animal, cool. and we would wear each other out and we would work really hard together. And it, it, you know, or I would take the dog into the garden and I would just keep throwing the ball yeah. till he was knackered yeah. and I was knackered. And of course, it doesn't take long for you know somebody like me to get tired. Um, but that was the point. Yeah. yeah. The point of it was just to get to that moment of I don't want to, th you know, I can't think about this, so I'm going to go and try everything I can to not think yeah, about absolutely. it. Yeah, um, absolutely, absolutely. You know, and I know that because right now I've seen two rejection emails oh, coming in as so yeah. we're on on the podcast, so uh, I'm like, oh, yeah. oh, it's going to be one of those days. Uh, Great. <laughs> talk, talk to me so think about it talk to me yeah exactly um so at least with the podcast i do have that kind of form of escape to be able to go absolutely yeah okay this is good that's gonna suck when i open it but i i get at least a decent conversation today with somebody um but i also think some of us as as authors suffer from depression because we are very isolated yeah, yeah we are very lonely it's a danger, yeah yeah, yeah. And I think if we can start, uh, you know, having writing sessions right. together online or meetups and things like that, it would it would help a lot of people. And I think we would have less author suicides, too, because I think it's so easy for an author to get into that cycle of, you know, what what's the point? Yeah. Or I'm not what 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 am I doing yeah. this for? I've just wasted my entire life when I could have gone and been in an office and worked and and you know have a nice house and yeah. not you know what I mean, I know what you mean. all that doubt kind of creeps in yeah. and it just suffocates you yeah. um so yeah i think having that personal kind of connection to somebody could just actually ease that pressure a yeah, lot for sure. for sure so i'm also hoping to encourage authors you know who are either bestsellers and who aren't just to just to spend time with each other like yeah. have people that you want to speak to once a week and just connect in with them and just be like yeah hey how are you doing and just go for it yeah. you know just try and make the best out of every situation sounds good <laughs> uh, so going into the next question right. what inspired you to pick the type of genre for your writing that you did I, there's no point in me making this a long answer so so i was a history teacher i loved history and so i like historical fiction you know, i knew you were going to say so, that, so yeah, like it's that's it yeah. that's it uh there's no point in making it more complicated uh i enjoyed my job i kind of am continuing the same life in a different style if you like in retirement that's yeah. it I like the fact that you're also very adamant that you're writing what you know. 
because you've lived obviously in history and in that kind of world so you are using that additive of write what you know yeah i think that's right you know but the thing that historians learn history teachers learn is they have to turn their hands to teaching all kinds of different bits of history in the length of a career so everyone yes. can you know um do their research and immerse themselves in a in a in a, in a different period to shift period yeah. and i think that that that's a nice thing and you know someone like bernard cornwall is a great example who's written across like you know one half thousand years at least um i think pretty convincingly um and he yeah. treats it because he's a historian at heart essentially uh, yeah. yeah no i like that it that's that's a really good answer because i think a lot of people get really hung up on the oh well it was what i read or it was what i thought i could do best or you know what i mean so it's, it's nice to hear just a simple straight to the point yep is there a like when you're writing is your your writing process like a movie where you see the scenes and you experience the scenes or are you more like a jigsaw puzzle person where you're trying to put all the pieces together? Yeah, I, I think that's uh, it's 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 kind of it's a, mo a movie's quite a good analogy. I'm not really a jigsaw puzzle person. I, I know writers are. Um, yeah. I, I, I at the moment, I, I kind of think of it as like a Netflix series. Yes. That's kind of it. So more than a movie, because um, right. I. I don't know. As I as I've got older, I tend I I think I find that too many movies suffer from having too big a budget and not enough thought. Yeah. And yeah. a lot of what I call television, but we could probably call streaming now, uh, yeah. result of a slightly more constrained budget and a lot more thought, and and is often much better. So that you know, a single episode of something that I admire on anything. Name any screen service you want. I'm not being paid to advertise one or the other. Um, yeah, is is more effective uh, than than a movie. So, so yeah, I, I often think if this was no, I don't think if this was a Netflix series of my book, what would it look like? But I often think to back to like things that I've enjoyed the way they've been presented. Um, so, an example of what I'm talking about is. I have become, I've changed my mind about how you move between scenes a lot. Okay. So right. there would have been a time when I just wrote scenes that were connected to each other. Um, and I'm much more like happy now to, to chop and change or interlace yeah. several threads than I used to be. And I'm sure, I, I know there's plenty of writers that do that and I've read them, but seeing it, kind of makes it really easy to understand seeing it done on, on, on the screen and so I think I've got to yeah. draw on that is, is my answer hmm. it's interesting that's a very interesting take actually not not what I expected there to be <laughs> honest I, I myself if I'm plotting it's Jigsaw and then when I write it's the movie so I'm able to I kind mean, of I mean, use yeah, right of it. before I'm plotting there's a lot of bits so I call that the jigsaw, um, and then I think of a story arc. But then, how do I carve up that arc? Is when I get into the yeah. kind of the, the streaming service analogy. No, I get it. I get it. I think it's it's good to have that way where you can almost switch your mind to that point of how do I how can I make it stand out or how can I make it better? Yeah. 
exactly or make it better you know and that, that's what plotting's for that's yeah that you know it's working out the kinks before you actually jump in and just go for it yeah i mean if you you've know? done a good job plotting right yeah always with a bit of an anti-climax because you're really just filling in the you know you're just fleshing Blanks, what you've all yeah. got you know um which can be a shame but then you which is what so i funny enough I, I, so i quite enjoy that the process before the writing quite painful and then the editing i really enjoy you know to make, to make it yeah. better as you put it yeah i i think so too and i think it's it's strange because we don't necessarily realize that we're making changes and we're making things better until we do it and uh, so yeah i i find that an interesting experience yeah um i do hate plotting <laughs> but i know plotting is a necessary evil to get me where I need to go. I, my better the books that I think are more successful have been more thoroughly plotted first yeah. on and and then are being executed, put into practice. When, when I'm trying people who make it up as they go along, it, it yeah. depends on the genre, but, but yeah. there, there are so many potential pitfalls with that. Uh, yes. Anyway. Like forgetting the dog's yeah. name. Yeah. It, I mean like in my Richard Davis article when I sit down to write the fourth one, it, I don't have, to yeah. have as detailed a plot as I had to have for the first one. Because yeah. all the characters are already developed, well, most of the characters are already developed. You know, they've been on quite a journey. We already know quite yeah. a lot about them. So, you know, you're not starting at the beginning. And that no. it's easier if you're not starting at the beginning to just, it's a bit more of an art, you know. So, so I expect that one to be a lot easier than the first one, though, when I get to it. Yeah. I, I, again, that's another case of um, how do I put this? It, you're you're putting more time and effort and thought into it, um, and I think that's that's pretty incredible. You know, to think that you're you're able to do that that and you're able to do it in such a way that it makes a difference. Um, yeah, exactly, exactly, and, and that's the thing you have to set against all the rejection and yeah. everything. Is if one person says to you. I really enjoyed that. Well, That's what matters. It, but I am going to have to get you to read Marie's World because I plotted the hell out of that book. And I want to know if I actually pulled it off okay. with the plotting or if I yeah. maybe over-plotted because okay. that is a thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It, is, it is, it is. So I, I may I may send uh, send you an electronic okay. copy and be like, oh, yeah. Can, yeah. can you... I'm not very quick. I, I, whenever anyone does that, I do read it, but it can, it can be a few months before I get to it. Oh, I, I don't care how long it if takes, I no. If I don't, I've got a kind of schedule of, I've got to read this, this, and this, in order to write the next thing, and if I don't do that, and at the moment, Phil Reed sent me a, a, a fifth edition uh, part of her, her Guinevere series, and I'm reading that. No uh, <laughs> bit of feedback on that. And did you, yeah. do you want the sixth one? Because you're enjoying it. I'm thinking... Well, I do, but I don't, because if you give it to me, then I'll feel obligated to read it. If you give it to me yeah. after Christmas, I won't feel obligated until then. You know, there's always that going in yeah. my head. But anyway, but yeah, feel free. Feel free. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it's good as well if we're sharing with each other, we're learning each other's, we're learning from each other's crafts yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's really important. Yeah, yeah. Um, we need to keep learning. We need to keep that. So our styles are adapting and we're really pulling an audience deeper and deeper and deeper into what we're actually able to achieve yep. and what we're able to give them. Sure. Um, but I, I might be wrong. I might no, be no. wrong. 
is there a is there a character that stayed with you the longest that you just you just have not been able to shake? As as in one I've already written about. Yeah. Um, well, it's kind of there's a couple of different answers. I, 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 all, I'll give you several short answers if I can. So I, 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 I'm kind of now quite attached to my Richard Davy character, the kind of orphan history teacher who ends up in the past because yeah. there's a bit of me in him. Um, but he's yeah. he's more troubled than I am. I, I, I'm not an orphan, and I've never really had a I've had a quite a nice life. So he's had a worse life than I have. Um, but yeah. it's quite fun to write that, uh, and I've got quite attached to him over three books so far. Um, yeah. Looking more broadly, I always wanted to write a book which had Napoleon Bonaparte in it. So because I was always really interested in him as a character, because I taught, I, I learned about him at school. I taught about him for most of my career here and there. And so I, yeah. I always said to people, one day I'm going to write a book about Napoleon. It's kind of probably not the book I expected I'd write about Napoleon. But so for a long time, Napoleon's been in my mind as a, as a character. And I know people think that's terrible because he's clearly people stuff, but, you know, he's a product of his age, get over it. The reality is, you know, modern France owes a great debt to many of the things he did. Um, and anyway, his rise was just extraordinary because he went from being a very marginalised kind of nobody to you know, ruling a big chunk of you know Europe, um, which is, yeah. is extraordinary. I'm not saying he was a nice man, but he's a very interesting man. So there's him. Um, and clearly, I could have said the same about Charter because that was a big. I lived in South Africa as a little child, and um, so he he was quite a well-known figure. Uh, in South Africa, obviously, uh, much more so than yeah. in Europe or America. And so I'd always had an interest. I'd always kept up that interest. I did quite a lot of African history when I was at, at uni. So he, he was there too. Um, and then William Bowles is, is the last part of this answer because yeah. I discovered his existence about 25 years ago. And it's yeah. been in the back of my mind ever since. And I slowly gathered together some bits of information about him. It was almost it was pre-internet when I discovered him, and uh, I got hold of a couple of books um, about him, yeah. and kind of always knew I'd come back to his story one day. And so now that that he's currently my he's my current obsession, I guess. But I suspect okay. I might leave him behind when I finish with him. Um, yeah. You know, I might have spent enough time in his company by then. Yeah. <laughs> Is it a character you wish you could write more about? Is there one that you've just kind of? Yeah, so so there's there's a there's a, a kind of sidekick in in my Richard Davy Chronicles series called Emil, yeah. and he's a he's a he was part of Napoleon's bodyguard, uh, right. and he fought in the Battle of Waterloo, and he become he, he's kind of the first Frenchman in 1815 that that, that Richard meets and who. Um, yeah he's able to interact with and they become friends and he, he ends up on the African coast with with Richard and, and Napoleon and he yeah. become he is a military man by training and he's got yeah. he's trying to find his place in this new world and he becomes a white Zulu warrior and he, he, he goes through the training and he joins one of the regiments and so and he, he's in and out of the story here and there but his his story would be a good story to write. Other people have written about right. sim similar plots of a, of a white Zulu warrior, so it wouldn't be original. But but I'm fond of that character, and I'd quite like to follow 
his journey, um, which is largely now independent of the main characters. So Emil Bevo is his name, and yeah, one day there might be a book about Emil the White Zulu Warrior, um, if the world will allow such a thing. <laughs> well, we never know. We never know no. from one day to the next what we're what we're up against. Um, you know, so I always I always try and remind people of that. Yeah, absolutely. Is so, if any of your sto stories was to become a film or TV series, which one would you choose? So I reckon William Augustus Bowles' story would be a good film. I reckon right. you could do it in a film, a fast-paced yes. film. You know, the kind of Errol Flynn swashbuckling film version, but starring I don't know. Um, I put his picture on, on Facebook the other day uh, saying I'm writing a book about this guy and somebody somebody put in the message I don't care who he is he is Wah! that was her her view I think she approved of the way he looked he's a very handsome guy so it would have to be the right actor but I think yeah. that could go well as a movie um, as a series you know I would love to think there'd be a series you know several series on crime or whatever of of the Richard yeah. Davy Chronicles, I think they, they, they could work, but you'd need a big budget. You'd need a big budget. You can't set anything in the Battle of Waterloo and quite a lot of the half of the first, no, first, the middle third of the first book is the Battle of Waterloo. That's really expensive uh, to, to make Well, actually, to make look you'd, be surprised, you'd be surprised how many war reenactors would actually yeah. do it for free well, because it would I, I, give them a chance to do their ultimate... Yeah. Yeah. Battle reenactment. I, I just think the whole logistics um, of it. Though. I'm not a director. I don't, I'm not not fucking for that job. But but I, I do I do think that you know that there. Sorry, I knew a little bit about it. Yeah. I, I don't I, know if that like, came across. <laughs> you know, reenactors are, are a great idea, and I I, I follow quite a yeah. lot of reenactors on on Instagram and things who do who do the Waterloo stuff. Um, yeah, exactly. So I, yeah, I, I, I kind of think that that could be quite fun. It's just probably a bit old-fashioned those books those stories but for the modern you know not stranger things let's put it that way um, i think a lot of people are very interested in history now because of you know the fact that we're we've had another war we've had yeah, another true. another spy war started up again i think people are, are just edgy and i think that's where this need for being in history yeah yeah maybe you're right means the world you know yeah, yeah. and i think i think we could see um see more of this coming and, and i think that would be a very a very good thing yeah I, um, I mean there is supposed to be a big napoleon movie that's been talked about for ages it's, uh, i've heard rumors kit, about kit it bag. and i yeah and i've seen snippets of filming yeah. but i've never heard of a release date yet nope. and i hope that there is a release yeah. date and i hope it's not a a whoopsie we kind of we were playing around with an idea yeah. and decided not to follow it because that does happen in hollywood but yeah. i i did see snippets yeah. um because i i'm in the big rap which is uh, a site that um basically talks about the industry it talks about the different uh books or different you know scripts that are, are yeah. being done and who's making them and I mean, there was a beautiful vampire writer called Rachel Mead, and she struggled for years to get her books to be made into a TV series. 
she made, had a you know a small indie film made of it and she loved it and then you know the next thing she knows now is it's finally a TV series wow. with uh, Julia Plack who who actually made the Vampire Diaries right. famous yeah, yeah. Um, so it's amazing um, you know if you know the right people yeah. that's the key it, I think it's like knowing the right people is well, yeah. that's why networking is so important maybe that's it I, I mean I do have a friend who, who, who books were serialised by Netflix uh, so yeah. two series and it still didn't make him rich. Oh. Still didn't make him no. more money than the book. He still didn't make him rich. He still has to work for them. So there we go. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But that, that's not really the point of it, though. Yeah. The point of it, though, is, is, is not to make money. It's about telling your story. The stories that yeah. keep you awake at night. I, I, and... I would love to know what he thinks about them because they weren't like his book. Uh, particularly the second yeah. series, nothing like the book. And, and you do wonder whether, you know, they were listening to a whole load of focus groups who were telling them one thing and they weren't listening to the right. Well, I don't know how much input he had. I didn't like to ask. They never, they never tend to listen to the writer over the, uh, I'm sure the groups. Him, but, but, so. but, you know, they should have paid attention to what was good about the book, uh, you know, ra yeah. rather than what superficially looked good with CGI. Anyway. Yeah. But that, that, you know, that's just part of the world that we live in now is that... Yeah. It, we're governed by the viewers and and not not about what the authors put in or how special the work is or right. or anything like that. It's about well, can we sell it? Yeah, how much profit exactly, will we make? Exactly, exactly, you know, exactly. yeah. And I hate that, yeah. but that is the very real, exactly. you know, the real story. Exactly. Um, and that's good that we're telling people this yeah. because they have this sort of notion that you sign a contract and next thing you know everything's made and you know it's not that it's not that easy for sure what's the hardest challenge that uh, you've ever you've ever faced and what's your best experience that you've had in writing so these are both about in writing yeah um i, I think taking a whole load of jumbled ideas that have accumulated over 20 years and trying to decide how that could become a book yeah. when you've not written uh, a, a really cohesive Story. novel before yeah. uh, although I had, had had many failed attempts in draws um, some of which were long but, but nothing where I went that had a beginning a middle and end and kind of work even if no one else wanted yeah. it um, so doing that the first time was, was the big challenge uh, because for all that you read loads of books about how to do it and you've read lots yourself and so you kind of have lots of reference points they're just doing it. It's just a logistical kind of challenge. And you pretty quickly yeah. realise, well, there are a lot of characters to juggle here, and how do you manage that? Um, and I, I just have cards for all the characters and all their characteristics on each card so that I don't get it wrong. I, I could do it on the computer, but I don't want to do it on the computer. I like chucking the cards and putting them in different stacks for different parts of the book and that kind of thing. So, so working all that out was a big challenge the first time round, and then once you've got a system that works for you not saying it's transferable to others so that that would be that um and then what, what was the best experience i've ever had writing but i think it wasn't actually writing it was kind of reception of of, of my writing but there was a yeah a reviewer in new orleans uh oh. who um he's a black entrepreneur who runs a um 
a tea company, a company that makes different blends of tea and, wow. and distributes them. And she does this, uh, she has this YouTube channel where she um, reviews three or four books and recommends a, a blend of her tea to drink with the book, kind of a fun little yeah. way of doing it. And, and she said she wanted to review my book and I thought, well, so I can get Kindle because it's in America and my, you know, it'll cost too much to get the paper back. Anyway, so months went by and I didn't hear anything and I emailed her once and said, wondered if you were close to doing the book or how it's going. I think, oh yeah, yeah, it's about to drop and it's definitely with details. Anyway, I click on the link and I watch the review and the first, I'm the, like, the fourth book of the four and uh, the first yeah. book gets picked up about two, two and a half minutes, second book, two, two and a half minutes, third book, two and, a, two and a half minutes, my book, 18 and a half minutes talks about my book. Wow. And it, she starts off, you know, just by saying, you know, when I first started reading this, I wasn't sure, I put it aside, and then I felt like I was in the mood, and I picked it up, and she went, oh my God, oh my God, I have to tell you, this is a book you have to read. And she just went on, in a really coherent and enthusiastic way, thought yeah. about my book, the way I thought about my book. It was like yeah. she was in my head, and she was from a very different kind of background and everything, but she just got it. She saw it the way I saw it. She read it the way I intended someone to read it. And yep. it was just very moving. And I don't think it particularly had a huge number of views or massive reach. It certainly just sort of had an enormous impact on myself. But it just made me feel wonderful because here was someone, my book had reached exactly as I intended. So for me, that's, that's like the most important thing. But that's important that, because she would never have thought to pick up somebody from, you know, necessarily from England no. who's written that. And, yeah, you've changed the changed her conversation. And you've changed the way she's thinking. More than that, she had bought the paperback because she waived it on, on the show. So it would have cost more yeah. to have it shipped out than the cost of the, the, you know, the cover, cover price. Um, yeah. But she had bought the actual paperback. And, and her, her husband was reading it and uh, she was going to read the second one and it was great. So yeah, that, yeah that, that's, that's word of mouth. Yeah, as you rightly say, it's not yeah. it's not about getting rich, but it is about having people read the book. Yeah, and it's about you. You kind of almost have to accept that we hate media. I mean, come on, if we were honest, we would rather be doing 101 things right. other than what we're doing right now. Sure, but we do it because we know that it's the only way that people are going to know what our stuff is exactly. and what Abs it's about. Absolutely, and, we, and I have to say, Crystal, we appreciate the people who facilitate that, you know, uh, yeah. because, you know, not all of us have the, uh, the, the, the mm. ability to do that. Yeah, and that's why I said, like, I've done so many media things where people have said, oh, yeah, 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 I've read your book, and they haven't read the book. Oh. You know, I think mean, it, it's so frustrating yeah. because you know they haven't, you can't call them out because it's their show, right. their time, and you, that's why I wanted this to be something special. And I say to people, if I've been given their book and I haven't had a chance to finish it yet because I have dyslexia and it takes me a bit longer, I say, hey, I didn't get to finish it, but here's the thing. Right. This is what I think so far. Yeah, exactly. This is what I think of your style. This is what I think of your technique. Yeah, and that gives the, the writer the opportunity to talk both about yeah. the bit you've asked and, and say, and interestingly, what comes next, Without, you know, spoiler alert, but you, know, yeah. you, you can explore things as long as someone's got a bit of a sense of how you write and, you know, yeah. the characters. 
then, then but you can have if, a conversation. If you, look if you look close enough, you can tell how somebody writes. You can kind of almost piece together how all that little bits and pieces work together and how they've come to put their story together. And I think that's really important. And, you know, you just have to kind of stitch things together sometimes and sometimes yeah. things will not make any sense. Yeah. But it's good because you get an, an opportunity to learn what you think works and what you think doesn't yeah. work and what you can apply to your writing and what you think should never be applied to your writing. So what I've got to ask now is, right. What is the best technique you've ever used for writing, and what is the worst technique you've ever tried to use? Okay, so the, I, I'll do it the other way around. So the worst technique, without a doubt, because I had loads of experience with this, is rushing into writing something without enough planning. Never, right. ever works for me. Okay, I always end up tying myself up in knots, just spilling down a rabbit hole, yep. hopefully. And it, it, largely, that always happened when I didn't have enough time to write. So I, I wanted the pleasure of the creative process but I didn't have I didn't have enough time to you know uh, dedicate to it so the bit I enjoyed in those days was the actual writing and, and, and so on and really you end up like you might as well be writing about your death it, 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 if you just want to write something descriptive you know do a still life painting rather than you right. know, a, a more complex composition so so I, I it, that's what I learned through lots of failed attempts of when I didn't have time because I was working full time, life was complicated, and I was just going yeah. an hour here and an hour there. You know, you lose the thread of things. It hopes. So you need time and you need a plan. So that, that's something yes. I do. Other people may be different, but that's my bit of advice. Um, so so that so my worst technique is just rocking it up. Um, so my most successful mm -hmm. technique um, I, I think is a bit dull maybe, but it, it is just edit a lot, uh, and always edit yeah. in editing to make it shorter. It seems to me to work for yeah. me. Um, I am sometimes a bit guilty of liking three adjectives where one will do and all that kind of thing when I'm writing the first time. And that's not a bad thing, because when you go back and go back to the best of three adjectives and take the other two out, it kind of works. Um, but So that editing process is effective because it make, usually makes the book manageable. Uh, increases immediacy, I think, um, and gives you an opportunity to reflect on your, your, your first or second try. Um, yeah. And I, I rather enjoy, as I think I said earlier, that process of, um, it's a bit like, without being as good as this, they, they say that I think Michelangelo, he would look at a lump of marble and, and he could already see the statue that he wanted inside it and his job was just to chip away the excess to reveal it. Yeah. Well, in a way, yeah. that's kind of how I. What we're doing what with I'm books, doing yeah. When I'm editing the book, is I've got the lump, but to get it in the exact shape I want rather than the rough shape, you know, I've got to yeah. remove more than I've got to add. Um, and I think that, of course. basically, that always thinking takes stuff out. It's back to Hemingway and those sort of writers where, you know, they have a Very true. economic style, um, which. I never really successfully emulate, but, but, but I use as a kind of uh, reference point. What is the first thing you do when you want to de-stress from editing and writing? Go for a walk. Go, go, go like for that. a walk, either with the dog or up a hill. 
to the dog. Yeah. Now, the dog is a mountain dog. She's a Pyrenean mountain dog, but she's now too lazy to go up a hill. So either walk on the flat with the dog or go up a hill on my own. Um, that, that... Or you could just get, you know, a, you know, one of those dog treats on the end of a stick and just hold it in front of her as you're going up the hill. I don't know how long that would work for. It would initially, yeah, but it'd be a short. It have to be a short hill. So because it's a change, it's a reset. It's a change of context. Uh, yeah. It's it's also about health. It's exercise. It's fresh air. Um, and yeah. and if I've done that, I can eat what I like that day without worrying about the consequences as well. So yeah, that's what I would do. See, I don't have that no. issue. Like, I, I find it hilarious when people are all like, oh, you know, I have to watch what I'm eating. And I'm like, I have never been able to poop weight on in my life. Yeah, well, we're all, so, you know, that, that's... I would love that, that, that worry of having, you know, to watch what I'm eating. I, yeah, I just, I hate it because I always get that judgmentalness no. from the hospital of, oh my God, you're too thin and... You're anorexic and all this other stuff. So it'd be nice, yeah. It yeah. would be would would be nice to not get judged. Definitely, definitely. Um, I don't do it because other people. I I'm not controlling my weight because other people are judging me. I can care less what other people think about me at my age. But but it's more yeah. about just I, I'm still very active and and I'm lucky. You want to stay active, yeah. yeah. So I, I want to stay active, so it's really part of that. Yeah. Yeah, of course. What hobbies do you enjoy, and which ones do you wish you could explore more of? So, I'm kind of covered it. So, I'm a big hill walker, and I'm trying to climb all the 3,000 foot mountains in Scotland yep. at the moment. I'm quite a way into that. Um, so, I want to do all of them. So, that, the rest of that is what I want to do, and I, I will get there, I think, if my knees hold up. Uh, yeah. I, I do a lot of skiing as well, um, and, and I, I'm due to go skiing with my 88 year old father. Uh, in January. Wow. Um, he's still going, yeah. still skiing. Um, so that's good. We're off to do that. Um, so yeah, skiing. And I play, I play hockey every week for, for the local, for the island uh, mixed, mixed hockey team. Uh, that's um, pretty awesome. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, those are sort of my hobbies really outside writing, which is a hobby too. Um, and I love, I love music and I've been training to uh, have a radio show on our local community radio station. Um, which I've had to put slightly on the back burner for, for a variety of not very important reasons. So probably next spring I'll be starting uh, a show. That would be fun. Sky and Lockout Radio um, because I love my music. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, you could always sneak an author on yeah, yeah, so often. Well, it's a payback cause, because I only really got into it because a uh, Carol Horton who, who had a Sunday morning show on on on, the, on Sky Sky Radio. Um, she had me on to talk about my first book and then was nice about it and then had me on to talk about the sequel and was nice about it and she said to me you, you, you've got you're quite a natural sort of way about you on the radio um, yeah you, you, you should think about this and I got a couple of other people who listened to those shows say to me you sounded really natural have you ever thought about doing it and that got me thinking I got the same it, thing and I ended up doing the podcast oh, so thank yeah you, thank you so so yeah that's that's might be a so I might get a bit better with technology if I <laughs> I've had yeah um, it's, it's not it's that bit, hard it's honestly it's a bit daunting it's like anything when you're using it every yep. you know regularly it's fine it's it's getting over the hump there of that yeah it's the first in, time in my head yeah. and I'm at that age where we're a bit more averse to new, new stuff you know it's harder to yeah 
Yeah, of course. Take you're on so, a new, a new you're balance. getting that where you're comfortable in your yeah. ways and you're just not really wanting to go exploring yeah. but, but outside I, I, of it. I kind of committed to doing it, so, so it, it's good for yeah. me. And, um, I, I'm looking it is good for you, yeah. Out on the What's the first thing you do in the morning? So it's clean my teeth. Well, get out of bed and clean my teeth. And, and there's a story to that, which is that when I was a little boy, like yeah. most kids, I didn't really want to clean my teeth. And I, I still remember to this day my father saying to me, and this will sound terribly cruel, but it wasn't meant that way, um, if you don't clean your teeth, they'll dissolve. You know, the acid wow. bacteria will eat away at them and they'll dissolve. And it just it was such a vivid image. And I just went, oh, my God. And I, ever since then, I clean my teeth morning, morning, morning and evening. And have to, I do it too. And, and I have actually, to. Yeah. And I cannot possibly sleep if I haven't. And if I wake yeah. in the middle of the night because I've had too much to drink and realise I haven't cleaned my teeth, I will get up and clean my teeth. And having said that, I can be off my face and I will still clean my teeth before I go to bed. You know, yeah. I, you know I, I, I've done that it, too. It's kind of obsessive. So it's a very simple answer. It, it's clean my teeth and then probably let the dog out. If, yeah. if my wife to <laughs> do it. Um, people, people need to understand is if you don't let the dog out first... Consequences... Oh, there's consequences. Yeah. 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 What do you look forward to the most in your writing career and, and in life? Um, I, I think positive feedback about something you've written is the thing I, I, I've, I'm learning. Yeah. I, I, I thought it would be sales and I wanted it to be sales, but it isn't going to be sales. So, so I would say, mm. yeah, some positive feedback is just a lovely thing to hear. When, when you know yeah. it's genuine. So ideally from a complete stranger, you know, who says, I read your book and I really enjoyed it. That's lovely. So somebody said to me the other day, I want to buy, who had already bought my first two books in my book, The Daily Chronicle, said, I want to buy three more of each to, to get oh. people for Christmas because I think yeah. it's a great book. They were great, great reads. And how lovely. So that, that for me is about as lovely um, as anything can be. Um, so I'm, I, I couldn't be happier than with that. Sorry, I've forgotten the other question. Yeah, <laughs> there was only one. Um, I just said, which would you look forward to the most? You know, whether it's writing or whether it's your life, and you, right, well, you it's actually, that, so. yeah. I mean, there are other things in life that are more important than someone telling you they like my reading. I guess, um, you know, yeah. family and stuff like the rest of us. Um, but I'm very lucky. I live on a beautiful island, and I have, you know, my friends are all over the world. But um, you know, it's, it's it's lovely when we do get together, and you know, I've got to the age where when we meet up, we might not have seen each other for two or three years, as a lot of us have experienced, thanks to COVID and stuff, obviously. Yeah. And you just pick up where you left off, and that, that's another lovely, lovely thing about being... being I like that, too. Skin, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because I had that experience with my aunt. My aunt was down here recently for five days, and we were roommates for five days, and I haven't yeah. I've not done roommating in so long. Right. And... I liked it because we were lying next to each other. There was like a bedside table between our beds and, you know, we talked books and then both of us had a night where we were in so much pain because oh. we'd overdone it. Oh. Uh, she had a busted ankle. Oh, I have busted legs yes. and, you know, we're both lying there in pain, but we're keeping each other company yeah. at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. You're in, you're in you know, together. it's just odd. There's, there's a lot to be said for shared anything really, isn't there? Yeah, and it was it, we we share books. Cool. Um, you know, my grandmother installed it into her, and then she installed it into me. Um, 
and then of course my aunt's just kind of kept it going since she passed yeah. uh, but it, it's good because it, it's almost like connection between us where we look at each other and go ah you know yeah. like we get it we get it we get what, yeah, being what on we're the same doing wavelength here is a great thing. Yeah, it's good. It's it's fun, if nothing else. So I myself have uh, idiopathic rheumatoid arthritis, which makes me slow down and appreciate the day. What would you say makes you slow down and smell the roses? I'm not great at this, I'll be honest with you. Uh, so I'm always in a hurry and I've always been impatient, uh, which is a terrible thing for a writer. And, and I think writing as much as anything has been, been good for me because you have to slow down if you're going to do it half yeah. decently. So in a yeah. sort of way, that writing sources my answer to that, I think. The other thing yeah. is getting out in the mountains because you just have to go at the appropriate pace. If you rush it, you'll yeah. wear yourself out. You won't get to the end of the, the climb and so on. So yeah. it's a kind of combination of those two. That's good. Um, for me, I have to just be aware of however far I walk is however far I got to go walk back. Yeah. So I almost exactly. have to do the calculation so right. in my brain. Yeah. Whatever sort yeah. of walking you're doing, that's so true. We now have to do that for our dog too because... She's, yeah. she's lazy and she's getting old and so we often have conversations about do you think we ought to turn around now because she's got to walk this far again um, yeah, yeah we gotta, so get, her back gotta get her back home, yeah. and she just gets slower yeah. and slower and slower and she weighs 50 something kilos so I don't want to be carrying her no no oh, you don't you, you will definitely dog. blow your back yeah. and knees I could, doing I that I could yeah Where's your favorite place to curl up during the day? Do you have like so, the garden, yeah, cafe, yeah. Where, where do you like to go? It's not a, I'm not a particularly have, have a kind of, I like my desk where I work, it's huge. Yeah. I've got loads of stuff on it. And I've got, I've got a view, I can see a mountain out of my window, um, which is pretty cool. So I, 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 I'm not curled up here though, I'm working here. But I quite often just, I've got quite a comfy office chair. I quite often just sit in it and stare out the window. But otherwise, yeah. it's on the sofa watching the TV, to be honest, it's as likely as anywhere. If I want a break from doing this, I'll go and watch something as a distraction for an hour and, and put my feet up and, and sit on the sofa and the dog will be at my feet and that's that will be. Yeah, it's lovely. It's good. Yeah. It's good. Or, or any coffee shop. I like it. I love any like, coffee yeah, shop too. That's another one. It's very, that, that's my plans for coffee, tomorrow. Smell a coffee, no yeah. thought, happy day. Me out on this. I uh, I have my first day on Nano tomorrow, and I've got to do. I think it's like two thousand words, right? Uh, of my book. So I had plans to pack up my computer and and get a bus to Sterling, right? Um, go into whatever coffee shop I can find and just write yeah. till I get it done. Um, but whether I can get the confidence to go yeah. is a different story. I might just end up doing it at home. Well, but yeah, that's yeah. easy. But that's just me. I have, like, I'm trying to gain my confidence back after COVID and everything. I completely understand um, that. I completely understand. Yeah, especially with all the health conditions. And yeah, stuff, yeah, yeah. We, so I, I'm not going to make a religious point, but my wife and I go to a local uh, Episcopal church in Scotland, uh, our little town, and a lot of our uh, congregation hasn't come back yeah. because it's what you say they haven't got their confidence back that you know because we were shut for quite a while and then we were socially distancing and wearing masks and understandably yeah. they didn't want to come to any of that and even though now we're sort of back to normal you know there's still a prevalence of it out there and, and 
Also, yeah. they're they're older and they've got out of the habit of travelling, and you know, I don't yeah. think they'll all come back. It's sad, but but I understand. It is. I completely understand. Yeah, I mean, I used to go to the Hellsborough Baptist Church because I could walk there, and I loved it. And then COVID hit, and I was like, well, what? I can't go to church. This is weird. Yeah. And uh, I started doing it online, yeah, we, and I actually enjoy it yeah, online. Yeah, we did it online. Yeah, yeah. and it, I know it. it's not the same being together, but yeah. for somebody who's got health issues, who's no, in and at the hospital, really. it's, like, it's like a lifeline yeah, that people don't get. We were very lucky. We had quite a technical guy in our congregation, although he's very yeah. old, and he filmed all of our services when we were open throughout that whole, all of that period until quite recently. But the... There still is uh, some, the, the, the cathedral in our diocese still does it every Sunday, so people can yeah. do it online. But for a long time, it, you know, people could actually feel like they were part of our service with the people they were used to seeing in the congregation, which is yeah. it was the local church doing it. It's good. It is good because it's it, it also means like for people that are elderly and they can't physically Ab- get ab- anymore, yeah. Yeah. they can still feel like yeah. they're part of the worship. That's right. That's, although although that's we important. have several members of the congregation who, who are in uh, wheelchairs and I, I think for them it, it's a good excuse opportunity to get out of the house and yeah and, and mix with people who, who know them that they feel comfortable with so we yeah. obviously like these churches these days we've got the ramps and the facilities I also I also try to like remind my family who are totally not COVID concerned right you know, right. when you're coming to see me, yeah. take COVID test uh, before right. you see me, yeah. because I am the kind of person that will end up in yeah. ICU. Exactly, and I don't well, want that. We're, we're, it's different, but because my dad's a good age now, and he, he, yeah. he's fine uh, as far as you know. Um, but Helen and I, we're about to get our because we're over fifty-five. We're about to get our fourth jab before we go down to see it next time, so that we'll have the maximum coverage that we can have had as you say to help protect him we'll still test as well but you know it's a nice feeling that the the most tuned uh jab that, that accounts yeah. for omicron 2 will be in our arm before we do it yeah yeah i mean i i know i'm supposed to go get the fifth but right. they've made it so difficult for Hello. me now to get it that i can't get it so until I move somewhere that I can physically go to, like an area that does the jag, yeah, I won't get my fifth one, because how my body works is it doesn't hold on to, doesn't hold on to ways to kill off viruses. Yeah. I have no immunity. Yeah, and what and I have what I do have immunity for is like polio, diphtheria. Those are the like the big bad ones yeah. I have, but. Like chicken pox, <laughs> German measles, all that, I don't have it. So, um, and it's the same with COVID. Right. I don't seem to be holding on to COVID. So, um, be careful. Yeah. yeah. I have to, I have to be careful and I have to go get these injections. Um, yeah. But I can't, right now, I can't. No. It's a nightmare. nightmare. Especially with my partner working crazy hours with the bus driving. Right. Um, so yeah and and i feel for him too because he's you know he's doing all these crazy shifts with are so short staffed on the mainland right now um 
you know, you can tell it's wearing him really, right. really thin. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's. And I think I think they're going to strike soon. To be honest with you, I think they're going to strike. Oh, yeah. it's a mess, isn't it? Anyway. Well, we've got the post office uh, is striking and trains. You know, so it's, I don't know who's not striking now. Yeah. So, going into the word game, right. this is the last portion of the podcast and the most fun. Okay. This is when we will give a word and, you know, you've got to come up with the first book. If you get stuck, I have a list that I will throw at you and uh, maybe one of my suggestions will knock something loose in you. Mm. So, your first word is coffee. Yeah. Um nothing got nothing okay um, i can't think of a book ah no i've got one okay yeah so so marcel proof in search of lost time does he start okay. off with a coffee a coffee and a madeleine is the start of everything and that see i i was gonna say the whole thing. yeah i was gonna say omens by kelly armstrong because there's this little coffee shop diner oh, yeah. where this sort of very fantasy thriller it's it's the weirdest book i've ever read because it's it's fantasy it's it's paranormal it's suspense it's crime it's detective work all in one book wow, and i couldn't get my head around it the entire time i was reading right. i was like what genre is this supposed to be um but was it good but yeah was it good? Yep. It's a good book. It's, it's really, really different. Right. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Yep. I, I do recommend that for you. It is a small series, but it's good because it is so different. And it's nice to kind of get out of comfort zone, I think, sometimes. What about books? That's your next word. Books. Books. Yeah. I kind of, I kind of want to think of something with a library in it. Um, I'm thinking, I, I, it's not a specific book. It's more, it's more, it's more a writer. I think, and I, I just always think right. of Agatha Christie. Uh, yeah, and those because libraries, she always uh, has a book or something yeah, in her series. Yeah, and I, there were, there were, for all the, the the flaws that people are so keen to find in Agatha Christie's books, there, there's a there's a reason for their the enduring popularity of the stories and that is yeah. obviously they can be set anywhere and you know she just had the right sort of mind to write those books and i personally really like the era that she happened to be writing them in so what for her yeah. writing in the present has become kind of a historical setting over time and, and i enjoy that a lot so and who doesn't love a library i mean it, for me it's the best room it is. I, I I must admit, because I own so many bookshelves and I own so many books, I'm trying to get my husband to find a place where we can just make a third bedroom yeah. into a library we, we, that I can go. I was once lucky with... enough. So we once had a house which had a dining room and we weren't that sort of people. You know, that's because we had a big table in the kitchen and that was fine. So the yeah. became a library and we just had water walls. We had all the bookcases and it was perfect. It was just a dream yeah a dream that that's what i hope to do yeah. um, good luck with that you know yeah Lovely. uh especially because we're going to raise kids yeah. and i think it's so important to be for them to be surrounded by books absolutely you know? couldn't agree more couldn't agree more 
Leather armchairs. Leather armchairs. Leather armchairs. I think a Sherlock Holmes would yeah, say that. Yeah, that's a good one. I like that. It, it's sort of the same thing, isn't it? You want something with a, the right period. Maybe with a, with a maybe I'll say Jules Verne, you know, uh, around the okay. days that in the club at the beginning and the end um, where the challenge is issued and that kind of he lived that very safe life and then he didn't and it changed him by yeah. the time he came back you know so the guy who sat in the chair before he went and the guy who sat back in the chair when he came back was very different so that, that I think that's leather armchairs yeah the other that. one is and I, I can't remember the name of the series but it was Rachel Kane's library series stuck out with me and essentially the idea of that is libraries own all knowledge yeah so whatever book you get a blank and it's like a, a fake book like a kindle but yeah. it actually feels like a book right and when you open it it can be any book in the world but books are restricted and uh, you can only access certain uh, books okay. And it's it's the idea of them controlling the uh, the knowledge in the world. I think it's it's just different. Yeah. It's just such a different yeah. idea. What about swirling staircases? So like spiral ones. Yeah. Yeah. My dad's it's got different. My dad's got one in his house. Does that count? Um, <laughs> no, I think. Well, it it might inspire something out of you yeah. if you if your dad well, has one. Well, I can one. think of the books that are upstairs in that room. That's a well, there you go. So that would take me into. I think I'm looking at the shelf. What have we got from <laughs> that shelf that's worth mentioning? Um, it's full of. I'll tell you what it's full of. It's full of books. We live in Canada, and it's full of the sort of books you bought for 99 cents in the secondhand bookstore. The oh. era when they painted. The spines of all their books, like bright orange or bright yellow or bright green. So I don't know why yeah. they did that. And there's a whole load of books like that about, like, you know, surfing in California and really cheesy, awful books. Well, there's no yeah. North book, but you know, disposable yeah. books. And yet they weren't. They were being recycled. You know, someone said we read a few books because they were and read them, and something gave them back, and something ended up on the, on the shelf. Books like Rocky the Raccoon, the story of. A raccoon called Rocky. Nothing to do with the the, the one in the Beatles song. Um, so yeah, so uh, that's that's my link with. with... Well, for me, it was uh, Court of Thrones and Roses by Sarah J. Mass because it's always got spiral oh, okay. staircases in it. Right. And there's one that's actually got spiral staircase to heaven, which is like oh. a big house that's on top of a mountain, and the only way you can get to it is a spiral staircase in the middle of the mountain. Nice. Good. Yeah. What about gas lamps or gas lights? Well, I'm gonna. I hope I'm allowed to mention one of my own books. But yeah, so, you're definitely like that. So in rescuing Richard, which isn't out yet, um, yeah, Richard ends up in in London in 1820. Uh, I can't remember. Say, say 1827, but that might be. Yeah. I've my own book now. Um, and it's. So there, there is gas lighting in, in some of the wealthier areas of, of London by this time. And there's a scene where he's got rooms in the Adelphi, which is a, is a very grand sort of... They didn't really have hotels in those days, but it's like a proto-hotel, really, um, where yeah. you hired a suite of rooms. And he's looking out of the window and he's watching the lamplighter going along, lighting 
the lamp and the sort of almost sulfurous yellow glow coming out of them. And it's a kind of wintry, snowy uh, day. Um, and I, I like that scene. I think it's quite atmospheric. And, um, yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's got gas right in it. I was thinking of The Moth by Catherine Cookson. Oh, yeah. 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 She has a beautiful scene with them lighting the the street lights. Oh, yeah. And there's like this really emotional, big purpose for that when it comes to the main character of the story. And how that's a moment where she has this feeling of safety and feeling of not being alone in the world. Interesting, because there is a thing, isn't there, about, I think, light, that it's about yeah. us trying to control the world. You know, we're putting light where nature hasn't put light, and that is a lot about the human being placed in the world, and in a way, it does make us feel safer, because it's the fire at large, isn't it, right? It, 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 yeah, it's it, the thing it, that kept us warm. The walls and the, everything that's yeah. out there, at least, that we said you wanted to leave So I think they're very yeah. about, about that. It allowed us to have strength yeah. and it gave us the ability to feed each other. Exactly. And exactly. Yeah, I think that's really good. And I, I like how she took that that powerfulness of it and she, she used it in such a simple scene that had like that resonating power to it that just yeah. What about rugs? Oh it could be Arabian Nights, hasn't it? And yeah. magic 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 carpets. When I see rugs I think of magic carpet and as a kid sitting on one waiting for it to fly me away and didn't but then you fly away in your head using those sort of uh, uh yeah the night stories was yeah i like i also like the um the raven cycle by yeah. maggie steifer because yeah. she has a lot of those kind of elements of somebody who's desperately trying to escape their situation yeah. escape their life and uh, that they sit on rugs a lot, you know. Especially if you're a little kid. Yeah. You, I don't know if you did that when you had reading time at school oh, and yeah, you yeah. all had to sit Stay on the on rug. That rug. Don't get off the rug. Yeah. It's only where they yeah. can stop me. Yeah. 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 So that that to me kind of like it's it's a thing that sticks in my head. Yeah. Like uh, you know, it's weird how children childhood things can stay. Open fireplaces. Yeah, I kind of think of. Shakespeare and Falstaff and those sort of characters and the old kitchens and the big, big fireplaces and roasting and, and yeah. all of that. Um, so, so I've got that kind of, I want to say it's almost a medieval hall kind of image in my, in my head. But who doesn't love an open fireplace? And, and, and on the other hand, what a great place to read, sit and read, you know, a proper where you can sit right inside and are uh, wonderful. And you feel warm too. Yeah, and it's yeah. like coziness. But, yeah, absolutely. And after about twenty pages, you accidentally fall You're asleep. asleep. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I think I think that's 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 part of why I love it. You know, it's, it it was like the one thing I could do when I was at home and I wasn't ill right. was to to curl up next to the the electric fire we had in it in our our old home, and uh, I would I would get a chance to read one of my books or yeah. my mom would read yeah. one of my books to me and uh, yeah that was that was my thing that was like my exit out of the stress of being a child oh. with, with yeah. illness so I think yeah. that's great 
Yeah. 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 And last but not least, Dark Corners. Yeah, so uh, in in Ursula Le Guin's book, there are some yeah. dark corners and um, things that are almost from another plane that, that are like shadowy, demon, ghost, terrible, terrifying things that get led into Earthsea, the world of Earthsea, that, that shouldn't be in there. And that, yeah. um, you're best off when they stay in the dark corners, and when they're not in the dark corners, they're causing a lot of trouble. And, and uh, you know, the main character spends quite a lot of his time trying to put them back in the dimension where they belong. And um, right. so I always, and I've only read these quite recently, but, you know, it, it taps into lots of other stories that I read when I was younger and the sort of ones that always made you a bit wary of not having a light on somewhere in your bedroom so I'm actually quite glad I read these when I was a lot older it makes me think of Old Magic by Marianne Curley yeah. uh, that one was spooky spooky yeah <laughs> it yeah. was just that kind of spooky that stuck with you and yeah. I was almost scared that the the villain was going to crawl out of the book in the middle of the night, so I used to oh. tie it up with ribbon, and I would oh. sort of make sure there was something on top of it right. when I would go to sleep. And my yeah. mom was like, "You're demented, Crystal." Uh, Terry Terry Pratchett would approve because he knows that you know books about magic are full of magic and can do magic, and you know lies. Yeah, they'll they're, come they're and get thinking, you. They're all thinking. They're all sentient books. They're a thing. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. Um, I always think on it like, ooh. They're gonna crawl out of there, you know. Yeah, I do. Uh, So I always had that kind of weird um, obsession, (laughs) where I'm like, I don't want this to crawl out and get me. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, Um, which I think is kind of funny, but Mm. yeah. So that is the end of the podcast. Um, Thank you for having me. I think it's been a lot of fun and I think we've done a lot of really positive discussions. Um, you know, and this is a great safe place for doing those discussions and changing cool. publishing as we know it. Um, because that, that's our job. Uh, you know, be, be the people that leads the world better than how we found it. So, yeah, I will. I have been honored to have you on, and as I say to everyone, this is an open invitation. So please come back. Thank you very much. Um, and we will talk about your next upcoming yeah, when release I, when I've got something else to talk about. Yeah, yeah, write of more course. Bo- write some and, more books first. Yeah. You know, and maybe next time you can come on and talk to me about my historical if I ever get it published, cool. or my crime novel if I ever get it published. So um, well, that would be a lot of yeah, fun yeah. too. Yeah, keep going. Don't, don't, <laughs> listen, to the, don't listen to the the rejection. Just yeah, the rejection does get to me. I, I must know, admit, you know, I, I'm, I'm not completely immune. You know, my publisher keeps saying to me, "Look, you know, even J.K. Rowling got rejected lots and lots of times." So you know, yeah, she did. Happens. She Happens. did. Eighteen, eighteen times. Eighteen people passed over the opportunity to publish. I'm passed over it all the time. I think I, I think I I've kind of gotten to that point where I'm I like think I'm Harry, I think I've got Harry Potter up my sleeve either, but it's just it's just a, it's a safe, it's worth remembering that yeah. it's all part of the process of being a writer. Unfortunately, uh, it, and it, every, it every, everyone goes through it. Everyone goes through it. Yeah. She, I mean, when she when she submitted a book under somebody else's name after Harry Potter, she got rejected. You know, which makes me laugh. I yeah, but I think that 
I think there's more to her story than actually we know about. And I think it'd be really awesome if one day she kind of opened up a little bit more and explained well, her journey. Yeah, up to her, because she's got her relationship with the media and she knows yeah. what she thinks about. Maybe she just needs the right podcast. Well, maybe maybe she does. Maybe you should reach out to her. Uh, I, I, I just I have. That... I did. Okay. I, I did, and I got rejected. So. <laughs> yeah, but at least you tried. At least you tried. But yeah, I, I wanted, I wanted her to have a safe space. So she could come on and talk, and uh, no, you know, for her, I don't think she's very confident there is a safe space because it's not what you do; it's what someone does with what what's been said later, isn't it? And how it gets re-reported or soundbited, or that's not a word, but you know what I mean. Oh no, I do get what you mean, and I I completely understand where she's from. I was, I was one of those kids. I was on Jim will fix it. I know exactly what it feels like. Um, to be unsure of what you're yeah. saying because yeah. I was in that position and it's awful but it has been an absolute pleasure to have you Thank you and much. I hope you share it with your friends and be like hey you want to check this this podcast out yep. it's, it's a lot of it, fun but we've got, got to wait, a way to wait before, before that happens haven't I April or May yeah yep it'll yep. be uh, end of end of April beginning of May hopefully um, cool. and then we will look forward to it We'll be having a, probably another conversation then. I, I, you know, or I hope we will. <laughs> you never know. You never know. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, no. And uh, guys, you'll want to check back next week as we have some crazy uh, uh, guests coming in that I don't even know how this is going to go. So enjoy and uh, yeah, make sure you check out Gareth's work today.